בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים. We are back here on our Wednesday night, and we missed you guys. We missed doing the שיעורים with you. We weren't able to do the last couple of שיעורים, but ברוך השם, הקדוש ברוך הוא gave us the זכות. To do sure tonight, our longest standing series, the Stump the Rabbi, we're after some divrei Torah. Bezot Hashem, you guys will then ask some questions, and Kadosh Baruch Hu Bezot Hashem will give us some answers. Tonight's show is going to be for the Refuah Shlema, for Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Avi Mori David Ben Nesriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jorah. Uh, and uh, all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to uh, watch our shiurim, learn together with us, grow together with us, Baruch Hashem, and uh, share all of these lectures with as many people as possible so more people can get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Uh, so we have Parashat Tetzaveh, of course, many different t- technical difficulties, but we'll do our best to, uh, Bezat Hashem, uh, work through them. Uh, but uh, to give you guys uh, some uh, brief updates, because there's a lot of material, Baruch Hashem, and we're running behind already. Uh, the uh, special Sichot book that's in both English and Hebrew uh, that you guys probably have seen the posters on is, uh, Baruch Hashem, one of the uh, most amazing uh, things that we've seen where a lot of people are ordering this for their community and uh, people are already coming for seconds. We uh, have another... Um, uh, huge uh, delivery coming uh, later this uh, week in the next couple of days but I believe everything that we've ordered is already gone and spoken for and we already have to place the uh, next order for the next uh, batch so uh, many of you will be getting the books next week and uh, those of you that order today will probably get it within the next couple of weeks but uh, order fast because we're quickly running out Baruch Hashem but uh, the book is good for couples, it's good for young people, uh, it's good for old people, it's good for people that speak Hebrew, it's good for people that speak English. Uh, in so many words, it's good for the Jewish world uh, because it puts a very uh, beautiful perspective written by Rabbi Ephraim, our own very dear Rabbi Ephraim Kachlon and his uh, Rabbanit, uh, Rabbanit Sarah, uh, and uh, puts things in a uh, very simple uh, uh, terms and uh, really just a beautiful language to give you uh, some chizuk uh, throughout the week, throughout uh, your life and uh, throughout the holidays Hashem, as we have a very uh, happy holiday coming up next month but there's a small version of it uh, and really uh, in the next couple of days which is Purim Katan uh, but uh, this uh, book you can get a uh, box of 20 for free uh, and uh, this is only for delivery in the United States. I know some of you uh, have asked for delivery for different countries, uh, unless you're willing to pay for the shipping, which is very expensive. Uh, you know, this is only for, uh, for U.S. Uh, we have actually some in Israel, so it's also in Israel, but uh, other countries we simply cannot uh, afford to pay all of the delivery charges for all over the world. Already the books themselves, 20 books, already cost a few hundred dollars, uh, there's just so much that we can do, Baruch Hashem. But if you're willing to contribute, uh, you know, then uh, certainly we'd be happy to uh, to do it. People uh, that have asked me about, uh, you know, shipping these to, uh, you know, to different parts of Europe uh, and other places, uh, and I told them they have to pay the shipping. I said, sure, why not? What is it, twenty dollars? Like, no, <laughs> it's usually a few hundred dollars. Uh, it's not uh, it's not cheap because it's heavy. 
Uh, and then, you know, they don't want it bad enough in some cases. In other cases, they do. So whoever wants it, whoever is able to do it, by all means, we happy, we're happy to, uh, to help. Uh, also, for those of you that uh, can't give them out because you're busy, because you've got a lot going on, you can still contribute by going to that same website, the uh, kiruvstore.org, K-I-R-U-V-S-T-R-E.org, uh, and you could simply donate. Donate, uh, you know, as much as your heart uh, allows, Bezal Hashem. Uh, so that's certainly a way that you can contribute. Last but not least, remember we have the Tikkun Shovavim. Tikkun Shovavim uh, is an auspicious time where Hakadosh Baruch Hu opens up the gates of heaven, and uh, those of us that uh, take the initiative not only to do tshuva for immorality of the past, whether it be wasting seed or uh, adultery or uh, promiscuity or uh, LGBTQ or whatever it is that a person uh, has, uh, has, has falling into and they want to fix it. They, you know, you first start with the tshuva, which we've discussed many times. Uh, but of course, if somebody wants to do a tikkun, this is the time to do it. Uh, you can go to our uh, site tikkunabrit.live T-I-K-K-U-N-H-A-B-R-I-T uh, dot L-I-V-E and you could do your tikkun. This is the last week, meaning we only have a few more days uh, before the end of the zman of what's called Shovavim, uh, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to us, Shuvu Shovavim, come back, uh, you know, wayward children. This is the time to do it. Some of you have taken this extremely seriously and have, uh, have uh, made uh, some very big tikkunim, Baruch Hashem, for you know everybody in their own uh, uh, relative to them, uh, others uh, you know really don't think it's a big deal. They think that Hashem is simply going to forget, uh, you know, the the sin somehow just because you're keeping Shabbat or you're learning Torah or you are just a decent person that doesn't kill people, uh, and you think that Hashem just uh, is going to eliminate it somehow. So that's why I highly recommend for people to watch the Tikkun Abrit film that we have. Uh, because that puts things into perspective. And also for those of you that are uh, uh, avid watchers of our shirim and films and so on, I'm sure that you are very uh, excited if you haven't already watched a new film that we released last night, uh, in re- only a 10-minute film, uh, but it was about some uh, extraordinary proofs about reincarnation according to the Holy Jewish Torah. Uh, and... Uh, not only talking about the parts of the Torah, but actually showing some uh, extraordinary real-life examples uh, that, uh, you know, it's just simply mind-boggling how beautiful and true the Torah is. So, with all of that being said, anyone that wants to do a tikkun, like I said, go to tikkunabrit.live. If you're having trouble donating over there, you could uh, donate on one of our other websites, the Bezal Hashem website, on the app, you could send a check, whatever, you know, whatever is easier for you, that's fine. Uh, and uh, anyone that wants to get some free books, USBs, all that other stuff that we uh, give out for free, which is pretty much everything, uh, you can go to the kiruvstore.org. So for those of you that sometimes ask, what do you do with the uh, Tikkun Abrit money? Kiruv store. That Kiruv store, all the free USBs of Tikkun Abrit, which each one costs a ton of money. Each box that we send to people is literally hundreds and hundreds of dollars. That's where it goes. You're, in essence, each one of you that's donating is helping another person that's going to be distributing. It's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's one, one hand washes the other. So this is the beautiful thing that we have here 
at Bezad Hashem. So, with that being said, we have Baruch Hashem, Parashat Tetzaveh. Parashat Tetzaveh really tells us about, you know, the Am Yisrael in, obviously, in ancient history, just a few thousand years ago, Am Yisrael is in a desert, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is having Moshe Rabbeinu uh, tell Am Yisrael the different uh, steps to uh, prepare for the Mishkan, prepare the Mishkan, uh, and one of those steps that we begin the parasha with uh, is the uh, different uh, garments of the Kohen Gadol, uh, which are eight different garments, the uh, the garments of the uh, regular Kohen, or called Kohen Idiot. Um, and uh, they have uh, four garments, uh, the the uh, the different uh, Korbanot, the uh, oil, so a lot of interesting things. And of course, this is a, uh, a, uh, a lot of beautiful things that are happening in Torah, but if you are like me and you always want to learn from a Torah, not just what happened 3,300 years ago or, uh, or, or any other time that we have throughout our history, but you actually want to know what can you do about it today, you know, especially if you're not a Kohen, we don't have a Bet HaMikdash, uh, unfortunately, not yet. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, you're not really sure what is the uh, point of uh, remembering the different names of these clothings uh, of the Kohen or of these Korbanot. Uh, so how can you apply all of this to your life today? And that's in essence our goal with every single shiu to take the ancient and holy Torah, the divine words of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and show you how it applies to our lives today. Now, many times, and uh, since I deal with a lot of different people from around the world that are going through different uh, parts of their journey in life, some are having difficulties in finances, others with marriage, children, moving from place to place, uh, you know, sometimes they're, uh, you know, at, a, at the best times of their lives, sometimes, unfortunately, at the worst times of their lives, some people are suffering because they're, they found out that their partner uh, has, uh, has, has cheated on them, whether in business or uh, their marriage. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of different uh, stories that c- come across our desk. And many times when I see, uh, you know, and I, and I deal with different people that are depressed, uh, you know, I, I see that uh, they have a common denominator, which is that they are harping on the past. They're harping on the past. It's actually a similar... Uh, behavior on people that are uh, very arrogant uh, also like to harp on the past uh, you know because you know they've done a few things in the past and they want recognition for it even if 20 years have passed you know it's like the celebrities of yesteryear that still want prime time uh, attention today you know he was in a movie 25 years ago but he still wants the world to, uh, to like him, even though he's uh, 25 years older, uglier, and uh, certainly not as interesting. So many times you see this common denominator of people harping on their past. On the other hand, there are a, uh, you know, many of us that harp on the future. You know, harp on the future, the unknown future, the terrible future, the, uh, the, uh, all the different uh, dangers that are out there. There's obviously war in the air. Uh, everywhere, whether it's the uh, Ukraine uh, and Russia, or it's the potential w- what's going on with China, the Middle East. You know, there's so many different things going on, and anyone that wastes even a minute of their day uh, poisoning their mind with uh, with the news 
is certainly to uh, you know become scared and uh, practically petrified uh, you know of the future to the point where some people are scared to leave their house or their city uh, you know because they're constantly expecting some atomic bomb to drop or or, or some type of uh, horrible thing to ha- to happen. Now, of course, we all know that Akadosh Baruch Hu already decides who's going to live and who's going to die, who's going to be rich and who's going to be poor, who's going to make money, who's going to lose money, who's going to get married, who's going to get divorced, who's going to have kids, who's not going to have kids. Uh, all of these different things, Akadosh Baruch Hu already decides on Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, the decree is already passed of what's going to happen to you, meaning that whether you watch the news and prepare for the future or you don't, it's completely irrelevant because the news and the wars and the uh, and, and the, all of the uh, viruses and all the different things that are constantly thrown in people's face to create a uh, certain level of fear uh, so people can continue to tune in because that's you know part of the addiction is to get people to be afraid enough so they don't want to miss a show. So they don't want to miss a video. Uh, and what ends up happening is that uh, a person that is Torah observant, keeps Shabbat, keeps kosher, you know, if it's a woman, keeps modesty. If it's a man, protects their breed. All of the good things could easily forget about HaKadosh Baruch Hu being the one that decides who and what is going to happen. The only thing that we decide is whether we're going to serve Him or not. That's what we decide. Whether we fear Hashem or we don't fear Hashem. Whether we're going to do the mitzvot, whether we don't do the mitzvot. That's the only thing that we can decide. As far as the outcome of any action that you do is not within your hands. Even if a person is crazy enough to the point where they want to kill themselves, the so-called success in doing that is also determined by Hashem. As we saw several times with a uh, first, uh, first-hand experience with people that we knew that tried to kill themselves, and Hashem simply decided no. And in other cases, unfortunately, Hashem decided yes. Uh, now, of course, if a person uh, does do such a thing, according to the Torah, it's a, a very big sin, and is uh, you know, and the person is, uh, in so many words, murdering themselves and will be uh, punished for that uh, severely. But the key is to know that instead of wasting our time on harping on the past or uh, being addicted to the future, what our Holy Torah does is that it takes the past lessons and has a clear understanding of what the future looks like based on what the past has taught us and then teaches us what to do with the present. We must live in the present. This is the reason why one should not uh, spend too much time, uh, you know, learning or or discussing the uh, the Mashiach and what's going to happen after he comes, or the end of the world, or uh, what are you going to do in twenty years from now? Uh, all of these different discussions of the future many times are detrimental to a person's uh, mental health and and spiritual health because many times. Uh, a person is going to, you know, try to prepare for a future that he may, unfortunately, not even see. Uh, because, not necessarily because he's not only going to live for it or live for it, but also because so many things happen in the present that each and every one of those experiences changes the potential outcome, changes the entire equation. 
The same exact thing goes with people that harp on the past. So many times people harp on the past that they literally you know, make themselves disabled from acting on the present because they look at all of the past mistakes that they've made and they simply looks like such a big list that they figure that they can never fix it. They can never fix it because every time they think again, they figure out another mistake. Or people that have had success and are disabled by that because they're not having the same success currently. So they figure that, you know, they, they must get to the root of it. And what they don't realize is that in the past when they succeeded, it's because they were living in the present. Today when they're failing, it's because they're living in the past. So what is the Holy Torah going to t- teach us further in Parashat Tetzaveh? We're not going to a different parasha. It's always in this week's parasha. It's always in the weekly parasha that we have, the lessons we need to learn. What is the Holy Torah going to teach us about the past, about the future, and needless to say, about what we need to do in the present? Now, the parasha starts, parashat Tetzaveh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 27, verse number 20. It starts off with one of the most profound uh, statements that uh, is constantly used by our holy sages uh, to uh, as a symbolic for Am Yisrael, where Hakadosh Baruch Hu says, Yisrael shemen zait zach, katit ner tamid. Now you shall command the children of Israel that they shall take for you a clear or pure olive oil crushed for illumination to kindle the lamp continually. So of course the basic uh, statement here is talking about how Kadosh Baruch Hu is commanding Moshe Rabbeinu to tell Am Yisrael that when they make the oil for the lamp of the Mishkan and then later on the Bet HaMikdash, it must be uh, from uh, um, done through a certain uh, process you can't just grind them because that's going to leave little pieces. You have to crush them. You have to crush those olives in order for the oil to be completely pure without anything uh, that uh, is, in essence, considered uh, foreign. Now, great. Unless you're in the oil business, this is not going to affect you. But our holy sages teach us that a Kadosh Hu is constantly comparing Am Yisrael to Shemen Zayt, Zach, to pure olive oil, when we are fulfilling His will. When we're fulfilling HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will and by following the Holy Torah, we are in essence pure, clear olive oil. Now, of course, our ultimate leader, the most pure of all was Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, our leader, is who Hashem is referring to, Vata. But interestingly enough, he doesn't say his name. This is because in next week's parasha, Parashat Kitisa, when Am Yisrael makes the sin of the golden calf, Hashem threatens to destroy them. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, if you're going to destroy them, then erase me from your book. Because Hashem offered him to start a whole new nation from him since he was so pure and so good and so holy. Let me start a new nation with you. 
Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, 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 no. I don't want to be the leader that followed the patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, all of the holy people that have come throughout all the generations. And I'm now the leader, but I'm the leader that got the nation destroyed. So if you're going to destroy them, remove me too. Remove me from the book. Now, of course, the Gemara teaches us that a righteous person, when they curse someone, even if it's unintentionally, Hashem fulfills it. Hashem fulfills it. We see it from Yaakov Avinu. As the prime example, the Zohar Kadosh says, Yaakov Avinu, when uh, Lavan chased after him to uh, see, uh, you know, if he, uh, you know, to, to, if he stole his, uh, his idols, Yaakov did not know that his wife Rachel stole her father's idols, uh, which actually uh, were able to, uh, had a lot of tum'ah in them and were able to give uh, Lavan a insight into the future. And that's why he wanted them so much, because if it was just simple statues that uh, he could just make from some clay, uh, then he would just make new ones and not travel, you know, uh, several days uh, to go chase after a few statues. But these were statues that uh, went through a, uh, a certain uh, um, ritual of, uh, of impurity and witchcraft that uh, Lavan was the ultimate expert in. And uh, because this is considered idolatry, Rachel did not want her father to continue with idolatry and she stole those statues. And she did not tell her husband, Yaakov. So when Yaakov said to Lavan, I worked for you for over two decades and never took anything from you. And in fact, uh, you know, I worked through the night and the day where if somebody stole through the night, one of the uh, sheeps, one of the, uh, uh, if one of them, uh, you know, got killed by an animal, I would take out of my pocket and give you. Meaning that not only did I not steal, I ended up taking out of my own pocket just so you're always whole. You never had any loss. And now you're, threatening, you're, you're, you're accusing me of stealing. If you find that anything is stolen here from you, any, anything of yours is here, that person shall die. Now, I gave a chidush some years ago where I said that Yaakov Avinu did not, uh, uh, not only didn't know that it's his wife, but in essence, Yaakov Avinu was just implementing the Noahide laws because according to the Noahide laws, unlike in uh, the, you know, the, uh, the Torah that's applied to the Jewish people, where if a Jew steals and he gets caught, he has to pay double. And Noahide that steals, it's a uh, heavenly death penalty. Uh, so uh, it's any violation of the seven Noahide laws or a death penalty. So Yaakov Avinu was in essence, since this is before uh, Matan Torah, even though he followed the entire Torah, he in essence said that if somebody stole one of these uh, 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 servants that I have, one, uh, you know, that uh, stole, they'll get the death penalty. Because that's, that's the decree. That's the Noahide laws. Now he didn't know that it's his wife that took it. And uh, shortly thereafter, his wife Rachel died. Now of course, Yaakov would have never said what he said had he known that his wife took it. But the Zohar Kedosh says that tzaddikim, the righteous people, when they say something, even if that something is negative, Hashem fulfills it. So when Moshe Rabbeinu said, take me out of this book, even though Hashem did not destroy Am Yisrael, Hashem, he still had to implement this because the Midat Adin, the, the, uh, the uh, decree of, uh, of, of judgment, was constantly 
asking Hashem to implement the law as a Kadosh Baruch Hu was disclosing more and more of the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu. The judgment, the decree of judgment was saying to Hashem, well, he's in his parasha again. He's in his parasha again. He's in his parasha again. You said you're going to remove him from the book. You have to remove him at least one time. So we see that one of those uh, removals was in the uh, in Parashat Tetzaveh. But a question is asked that I uh, heard a Talmud Chacham Rav Eliyahu ask it, which is again, it's a very uh, uh, clever question. That is removal of your name from something always punishment or sometimes punishment and sometimes not. It depends how you look at things. If a person obviously is a uh, you know needs his name to be shown somewhere, let's say for example he works for a company and he wants to uh, you know his performance or her performance in the company is uh, stellar and he wants that uh, and, and usually the company has a tradition of publicizing the top producers, the best performers, and all of a sudden this year they decided that uh, they're not going to disclose. The, uh, the names of the top performers, they're afraid of poaching, they're afraid of some competitor stealing their uh, top performers, or they're afraid of uh, jealousy, whatever their you know, excuse they come up with. Now, of course, the person that was a top performer is harmed by this, uh, not having his name or her name uh, publicized because they want to be shown, because if they're looking for you know, a different job and they want more money, you know, this would be certainly uh, a big uh, a big plus for them to show that, look, I was publicized in the, uh, you know, the annual uh, shareholder uh, letter as a top performer. You know, it's a made an impact on the entire company. But if the name is not there, you can't, you can just tell people that and they can choose whether to believe you or not. So, of course, in that particular case, it's a punishment. On the other hand, if somebody decides to donate a large amount of money to Be'ezrat Hashem organization and uh, in order to help us bring Am Yisrael closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in order to help us help more people that want to convert to Judaism like one of our dear Talmidot uh, just completed her conversion Baruch Hashem uh, just uh, this week Baruch Hashem after a lot of effort and uh, sacrifices big mazal tov uh, that uh, she completed the uh, conversion. And in fact, uh, we, this was one that uh, we had a uh, uh, very uh, uh, high level of involvement in. We actually had another one that converted in Israel uh, just yesterday as well. And Baruch Hashem, a few different people converted. But the point is, is that uh, you have a uh, person that wants to help us continue helping people that want to convert to Judaism, continue helping people that want to do tshuva, that are Jews want to do tshuva, continue helping people simply serve Hashem. And that person that donated that money for us to share the books for free and the USBs for free and all the lectures for free and everything that we do for free um, and decides, you know what? I don't want the world to know that I donated like when I donate to the synagogue or I donate to other things, I actually want this donation to simply be anonymous. Now, of course, they could still put their name on the receipt for tax purposes, but they're not going to tell the whole world about their donation. They're not going to make a, a public uh, announcement about it, share it on, uh, on everybody's email box. 
them you know making their uh, their donation in in essence uh, relatively anonymous or completely anonymous is not only not a punishment but it's the highest gift that they can give themselves because there are levels of tzedakah and the uh, the highest level of tzedakah is when you are giving but you don't know who the end receiver is so for example when somebody donates to our kolel or somebody donates to one of our campaigns to feed the poor people. You don't actually know the exact person that's receiving it. And the person that's receiving it doesn't know exactly where this meal came from or this uh, whatever you know they got came from. They know it came from our organization, but they don't necessarily know who's the one that's behind it. That's the highest level of tzedakah. The donor doesn't know who the receiver is and the receiver doesn't know who the donor is. That's the highest level of tzedakah. So when somebody keeps that anonymity to the point where pretty much the only one that knows is just, you know, the receipt that you have that you can report for tax purposes. Uh, if, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary benefit. It's an extraordinary gift. Now, of course, even if you publicize it, it's not necessarily a sin, Unless you're publicizing it for the sake of, you know, getting honor because you donated. Uh, so sometimes it's actually good for a person to publicize that he's donating or she's donating because they're doing it for the sake of encouraging other people to donate. They have friends and they want their friends to donate, you know, so they tell them, listen, I also donated. And what ends up happening actually is that even though they're losing some of the merit of anonymity, in, uh, by publicizing their donation, they'll gain a lot more from encouraging other people to donate than what their anonymity was actually worth. And that's why Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, Gadola the, uh, It's greater merit is given to the one that enables others to do good than the one that actually does good. Meaning the one that encourages other people to donate to Be'ezat Hashem will actually get even more merits than the person that actually donates. If you convince your uncle, your dad, your friend, your partner, your boss to donate money to an organization, even if you donate exactly the same amount, you'll actually get even a bigger merit, a bigger reward for the donation that they made. You still get a merit for yours, but even more for his because you encouraged others. Now, of course, this does not necessarily uh, absolve a person from the responsibility of, of doing what they need to do for themselves. But the point being is, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the ultimate fair judge, ultimate righteous judge, and he's always looking to give us more and more merits. So on one end, we saw that the removal of a name can be painful and can be a punishment. And on another end, it can be a reward. It can be profitable, I should say. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu's name was removed, and at the surface of it, it looks like it was a punishment. But the truth is that Moshe Rabbeinu's name of how it usually appears in the Torah was removed, but the name that doesn't usually appear in the Torah was placed. Chachamim teach us that the Moshe if you spell out the letters of the name Moshe, meaning the Mem is spelled, if you spell the letter Mem, Mem Mem, like as if, for example, in English, if you want to spell the letter uh, uh, B, then you would write B-E-E or B-E. 
you know, if you want to spell the, uh, the letter uh, S, then it's E-S. So here, if you spell the letters of the name Moshe, which is Mem is Mem Mem, Shin is Shin Yud Nun, and uh, uh, Hey is Hey Aleph, and you use the value of the letters that are added, in essence, to the name, you'll get a total gematria value of 101, which is the exact number of verses that are in this parasha. In so many words, Moshe Rabbeinu's name is the parasha itself. So we see on one end, Hashem had to implement a decree by not having Moshe Rabbeinu's name appear in the parasha, but his dear love for, for Moshe Rabbeinu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's love for Moshe Rabbeinu, obviously had to have it in another way, hide it in another way. Now, the examples of this we have in our, uh, in our uh, history in different places where the Gemara says at the time where Rabban Gamliel was the Nasi. Nasi was uh, in essence the, uh, the prince, was considered in essence the, the leader of Am Yisrael. And uh, he was the Nasi. And the Yeshiva, you know, was, had many, many Talmidim, the Av Bedin was Rabbi Natan. The Gdolador was Rabbi Meir Baraness. And they all came, you know, to the Bet Midrash every day. And uh, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Natan were very, very close. And uh, they saw that uh, Rabban Gamliel is uh, doing certain things they didn't like. Well, he was a little bit too strict with certain things. And in essence, they kept their eye on him. And one day when uh, Rabban Gamliel saw that uh, when he walks into the room, everybody rises like they're supposed to. But then when Rabbi Natan walks in, everybody rises again. And then when Rabbi Meir walks in, everybody rises again. He saw this as a minimization of the honor of the Torah for the position of Nasi. So he said, from now on, you don't rise for, uh, you know, you only rise for the Nasi. Now, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Natan thought this is maybe, you know, foul play here. They didn't like it. And uh, they said, you know what? We got to get him out of this position. Got to get him out of this position. And the Gemara says an extraordinary, extraordinary story of what happened. Look at the politics and the, the way sages fight. Now, for some people that are not familiar with the world of the sages and the holy Gemara, this will seem like petty. In reality, there's a lot more behind the scenes that many people don't understand. Honor of the Torah, honor of the Chachamim, a, uh, how to learn, who to learn from. There's a lot more details. But the point is that Rabbi Natan and Rabbi Meir didn't like this final move that Rabban Gamliel did. And they said, you know what? We are going to conspire together to get Rabban Gamliel out of here. How? He's the Nasi. Well, we have to, the Nasi has to be also the biggest Talmud Chacham. We're Talmud Chachamim. And uh, we don't necessarily think that he knows more. So what do we do? How do we prove? Tomorrow, when he gives his shoe, 
we're going to start asking questions about Masechet Uktsin. Masechet Uktsin is the last Masechet in the Mishnah. Few people study it. It's a very uh, uh, difficult uh, subject. Plus, it's not something that's practiced on a day-to-day basis like many other, other laws, similar to our weekly parasha. Our weekly parasha, Parashat Tetzaveh, we're talking about the big day Kohanim, the the, uh, the garments of the Kohen, all of the different eight garments for the Kohen Gadol, the garments for the Kohen uh, Ediot. Then we're talking about the you know the uh, different uh, parts of the Mishkan. None of this stuff anybody could apply today. So why do we study it? We'll get to that answer. But Chachamim was saying tomorrow we're going to ask him questions about Masechet Uktsin in front of everyone. Everyone's going to see. That he doesn't know Masechet Uktsin. Now one of the Chachamim, one of the students, heard this. He said, what? They, they're tzaddikim, he's a tzaddik. But uh, we have a clear Torah that tells us you can never embarrass another Jew in public if they're going to ask him questions about Masechet Uktsin. And he's not prepared, he's going to be publicly ashamed. And we know from Tamar, the wife of, uh, of uh, Yehuda, one of the sons of Yaakov, that it's better to jump into a burning fire than to ever embarrass anybody in public unless it's a, you have a permission to, public, to, to embarrass them according to the Torah. So he said, well, I have to go tell the Chacham, I have to go tell Rabban Gamliel that uh, tomorrow they're going to ask him about Masechet Uktsin, so he has to prepare. But then, how could I go tell him? Then it's going to be embarrassing for him by me. Why? It's by me telling him, go study Masechet Uktsin, it's in essence me assuming he doesn't know it already. So that's going to be embarrassing. Maybe not in public, but in front of me he'll be embarrassed. So what do I do? So what did he do? He decided to go and to the house of Rabban Gamliel, stand outside of his window of where he usually studies, and he himself started studying Masechet Uktsin out loud. Now Rabban Gamliel is studying his holy Torah, and he's hearing the Chacham outside of his window studying Masechet Uktsin. And the nature of the Chachamim, of the sages, was to always know that everything that happens in your life is constantly a Kadosh Baruch Hu talking to you. Constantly a Kadosh Baruch Hu talking to you. You missed an appointment, a Kadosh Baruch Hu is talking to you. He's giving you a message that it was better for you not to go to the appointment. You got sick, a Kadosh Baruch Hu is talking to you. He's telling you, in essence, that you had to fix something. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu replaced that, that thing that you had with sickness. Anything that happens in your life, you made money, you lost money, you uh, got an appointment, you got a customer, you lost a customer, whatever it is that happens in our life, it's always HaKadosh Baruch Hu talking to us. And Rabban Gamliel, it's now night, and he hears a Chacham outside of his house studying Masechet Uktsin. He's like, Hashem is talking to me. Apparently, Hashem wants me to study Masechet Uktsin. So he starts going over every Mishnah in Masechet Uktsin with all of the developments, the commentaries, the Midrashim, the, 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 the Tosfot, the, everything. And obviously, these things didn't exist yet uh, written, but everything, all the knowledge was already there from the time of Mount Sinai. And uh, the whole night... Rabban Gamliel is studying Masechet Uktsin because he took this as a divine intervention where Kadosh Baruch Hu is telling him he has to learn this. 
The next day, Rabbi Natan and Rabbi Meir are ready, gunslinging with the fiery questions. As soon as Rabban Gamliel goes on the front and starts speaking, they start asking questions about Masechet Uktzin. They throw him a question, complicated question. Rabban Gamliel knocks that question out of the park. Whoa, I didn't know the answer to that one. That one is, uh, whoa. Rabbi Natan throws a question, complicated question. Rabban Gamliel, pop, 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 breaks it down. Next, Rabbi Meir asks another question. Rabbi Natan, they keep firing questions one after another. And he's breaking up every single question, answering every single one of them as literally as if the entire Torah is in front of him and everything is clear as day. After some time with asking all these questions, they finished all the questions. Then Rabban Gamliel says to them, Ah, you two tried to test me. Baruch Hashem that Hashem had mercy on me and I studied Masechet Uktzin yesterday, had I not studied Masechet Uktzin last night, you would embarrass me in front of everyone. Out! Both of you! He kicked both of them out of the Bet Midrash. Both of them out of the Bet Midrash. We're talking about the Av Bet Din of Am Yisrael and the Gdol Ador, kicked out of the Bet Midrash. Now, person today gets kicked out of a synagogue, what do they do? They, they, they go home. They say, oh, okay, I don't have to be religious anymore. <laughs> Kid gets kicked out of a yeshiva. What does he do? Unfortunately, many times goes off the dech. Why? He thinks that, okay, so it's not my fault uh, anymore. They kicked me out. Chachamim that love the Torah know whether they kicked us out or they don't kick us out, we have to learn Torah. So what does a uh, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Natan do? They have to learn Torah. But where are we going to learn? Go home? No. This is where the Torah is. What are we going to do? We're going to stand outside the window. We're going to hear. We're going to hear talking from outside. We're going to hear the rest of the shields. Rabban Gamlieri's. We have to listen to his Torah. So they're listening to his Torah. But of course, these are Chachamim. These are the greatest Chachamim of Am Yisrael. And we have questions. So he said something. They take a piece of uh, paper of some kind. And they write a question. They make it into a uh, little airplane. And Throw it to the window. Somebody catches, opens up, sees the question by Rabbi Meir. Oh, and he says, uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Rabban Gamliel, uh, but what you said, it doesn't agree with what one of the Chachamim said, so how do you respond to that? Rabban Gamliel addresses it. As he's addressing it, another little airplane comes in. Another question. And they ask another question. So in essence, the Gdolea Adol are asking questions. They're involved in this you. And they keep throwing planes inside, keep throwing papers inside with more and more questions. That's how we learn. We learn from questions. The bigger the Chacham, the more sophisticated the questions are. They don't just ask questions for the sake of sounding smart. So they ask questions and the Chachamim inside, all the Talmidim, they're baffled by this whole scene that's happening here. And then they say to Rabban Gamliel, Kvod Arav, none of us are as smart as they are. Look at the questions they're asking. So how is it that the Torah is outside and we're here? How is the Torah outside? They're asking all the questions. They know you're, they're, they're involved in your issue more than we are. So how is the Torah outside 
meaning the sages that are there to Torah, they're the living Torah, but we are inside. Maybe the Rav can forgive them and let them back in. Rabban Gamliel says, you can let them in, but from now on, as the Nasi, passing a decree, punishment, a fine for what they did. From now on, no one has to stand when they come in, and when they say something, you don't write their names anymore. When Rabbi Meir says something, you say, Acharim say it. Others say this. Why? Because one of Rabbi Meir's uh, rabbis was Elisha Acher. So in essence, anytime you see in the Gemara where it says, Acharim say, that means Rabbi Meir Balanes. Of course, there are times where it actually says Rabbi Meir Balanes said something. But many times, more times it says, Acharim say. In regards to Rabbi Natan, Yesh Omrim. There are some that say, meaning it's two, in Hebrew it's completely different. Yesh Omrim is meaning there are some people that say, some sages that say, and Achrim say there are others that say. So it doesn't really translate well to English, but the point being is, is that he gave them two anonymous names. Two anonymous names. Now, of course, we know who they are, Gemara Masechet Orayot talks about it, but the, uh, the point being is, is that we see here that the removal of the name was a punishment for a couple of the Chachamim. Now, of course, HaKadosh Baruch wanted to make sure that we know it, hence the reason why you have all the, uh, the story itself, what transpired, how can we find them anyway, where they say, what they said. HaKadosh Baruch does not miss out on rewarding anyone that's entitled to a reward, whether it's a reward of notoriety, of money, or whatever it is. Kadosh Baruch pays everybody. Now, Rabbi Karim, we see that our Holy Torah here teaches us a bunch of things that are, for the average person that's looking at it superficially, seem like they're not really relevant to your uh, life in the year 2024, where you're you know, young, single, looking to get married one day, or, or or you're married, newlywed, you have a couple of kids maybe, or you're older already, you're in your uh, 40s, your life is relatively developed, and, you know, you got a little business going, you got a position at some major company. What am I going to do with the clothing of the Kohen Gadol? What am I going to do with this? How could I apply the weekly parasha to, to my life? Some people don't know that Salacha, Shulchan Aruch, Alacha, this is not a recommendation, this is not a suggestion. Alacha, Shulchan Aruch, every Jew must read the weekly parasha twice. Twice. Twice you have to read the parasha and once with commentary. Meaning you have to go to the parasha three times every week. Many times people do this on, uh, on, on Friday or on Shabbat. They use one of the, uh, you know, the time that the uh, Baal Kore reads the Torah is one of the times. They do the other times, uh, you know, right, uh, right there and then, uh, after shul, before, during the week. Bottom line is, uh, just like you have to, you know, uh, make a blessing on when you wash your hands, or you have to eat kosher food, uh, or anything else in Torah, it's alachad that every Jew has to learn the weekly parasha 
twice and commentary on the parasha once. So even when it's a parasha where on the surface of things, it doesn't look like it's relevant to your life. It doesn't look like it's relevant to your life. So first you have to know that just because something doesn't look relevant doesn't mean it's not relevant. And since we're already on the train of stories, I'll tell you another story. But this story didn't happen 2,000 years ago. This story took place about 400 years ago. The Gdola Dor at the time was Arav Yom Tov Heler. Arav Yom Tov Heler was one of the Tosfot, the extraordinary Chacham. At the time, he was living in, uh, in I believe, in Prague. And uh, he was extraordinarily uh, successful in the world of Torah, major notoriety all over uh, Europe. He was the biggest rabbi, you know, in the in the uh, continent. He was uh, one of the gdolei adol. He was also extraordinarily successful financially. He had uh, he was he's well off, not as well off as the goyim thought he was, but nonetheless, he was well off. Now. The uh, King Ferdinand II passed a decree that uh, since there was a war at the time and they wanted to raise more money for the war, so of course the victim of all of the crimes of the uh, of the enemies of the Jews are always, you know, going to uh, uh, they're going to make the Jews the victims even for their mistakes. So what happened? He want, they wanted to tax or they taxed the you know the Jewish community. In, uh, in uh, there, forty thousand dollars. In so many words, in today's in today's uh, 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 money, I don't know, forty million dollars. Extraordinary amount of money, or maybe more. Now, of course, the uh, unlike today, where each to their own mentality that people have. This came to the Jewish community. Who has to deal with it? The Gdolado, Rav Yom Tov Heller. And Rav Yom Tov Heller knew that, you know, the poor people in the community that are baking, barely making ends meet, they can't contribute much. On the other hand, there's a few rich people. A few rich people within the Jewish community, they have to contribute more. Why? They have more. Hashem blessed them with more. Therefore, they have a bigger responsibility. So he ruled that the... Wealthier people in the community have to contribute a large chunk of this forty thousand dollars that was due to the government. Now you would think, okay, these are all religious people keep Shabbat, keep the holidays, give tzedakah. The biggest rabbi in the world, chief rabbi, told you this is what you have to do. You do it. Well, it didn't work out so well. Why? Shortly after he told them this, they didn't really like it. And they uh, asked for a, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, others to get involved. There was a meeting over it. They reevaluated the whole thing and confirmed that what the rabbi said was fair. According to the Torah, it was 100% fair. Well, before they ever gave the money, all of a sudden, as Rav Yom Tov Heller is studying his holy Torah, he gets a knock on the door. It's one of the messengers of the uh, king telling him there's a ruling where you are under arrest 
and you have to come to the castle. You have to come to the court. It's a big embarrassment. They arrest the biggest rabbi in the world, treat him like a criminal, without even telling him what the charges are. Tell him that he did something against the kinghood. What did he do? Long story short, finally he gets, they go to the court, they tell him the charges, that he's under arrest. Why? Because in your books, you wrote derogatory statements against the Christian people, which is the people there, that this is their country. You wrote derogatory things against the Christian people. You called us idolaters. And uh, according to, uh, to the law, if proven guilty, which we have proofs of it, and even witnesses, if proven guilty, death penalty. Death penalty. He said, what witnesses do you have? What are you talking about? What I said is, no, he tries to defend himself. Like, no, we're not buying it. He goes, no, I wasn't talking about the Christians. I was talking about other Gentiles. We don't buy it. We don't buy it. What witnesses? Who who said that? Who are you? You're relying on what your Christian scholars are telling you? And the court surprised them by telling them, no, no, no. We have people from your community that came to us and told us that you are constantly talking against the Christian people and calling us idolaters. The pain of being in prison and being literally a stone throw away from getting the death penalty was big. But to hear that this all came from wicked Jews that pretend to be religious was the heartbreak of all heartbreaks. Now, Rav Yom Tovela had a few friends, a few, obviously many people loved him. They did whatever they could to help him improve the conditions, at least until the trial. Long story short, one of the uh, friends got him to be able to meet with the king, King Ferdinand himself. And uh, King Ferdinand said, yeah, I know about your case. And, uh, but because of your friends and uh, that are, uh, you know, that are friends of mine, I'm willing to hear you out. What do you have to say about it? And Rav Yom Tavela says, listen, uh, your highness, uh, this, these are false charges. I didn't talk about uh, you. He says, How? but you're saying in your books, you're saying that the uh, uh, Christians are idol worshippers. He goes, no, no, no. If you notice in my books, I don't say the word Christian in my book. I say the word akum. And akum, your highness, means people that are worshiping foreign gods that are a, uh, you know, that are Gentiles that are foreign, you know, that are worshiping other gods. It's not necessarily uh, the, uh, the, the Christians. So, and he explains, he tries to explain to this king how there's a difference between Akum, where they worship the stars and the moon and all types of idols and, you know, foreign things. And really, he's not referring to the Christians. Now, of course, the, uh, the, according to, to the Chachamim, uh, uh, the Christianity is considered idolatry. But he's not telling him this. He needs to save his life. He's not uh, obligated to tell him that, uh, really, yes, you, you guys are the idol worshippers and uh, please kill me. He's allowed to say, no, we're saying Akum. 
akum is a uh, ones that are um, that are uh, worship stars and other idols, whereas you guys believe in a trinity, which for us Jews is forbidden, but you're entitled to believe what you want, but you're not the same as the uh, people that worshipped an actual statue or, or prayed to the sun. So the king, Ferdinand, was a smart man, and he said to him, wait a minute. How many of these Akums, how many of these are in uh, Prague? He said, uh, not many. When was the last time you saw one? He says, your highness, I never saw one. He says, how many of these are in Europe? People that are worshipping the stars that you've seen, that you know of. He says, your highness, I, I don't know of any. He says, so how do you expect me to believe that you wrote in multiple books, multiple times about these idol worshippers that don't exist and it's not really referring to us? Why would you ever write about something that doesn't exist? And the genius of Yom Tov Heller says to the king that literally has his life in his hands, if you will, the flesh and blood, allowed to kill him, says to him, Johannes, you believe in our, you believe in our Holy Torah. You believe in the Old Testament. Yes. He says, you know that in the Old Testament, we have Parashat Tetzaveh. We have, Parashat talks about the clothing of the Kohen Gadol. We have a parasha that talks about the Bet Mikdash. We have a parasha that talks about all of the sacrifices. And you know that us Jews, we study those laws day in and day out. Every single day we study this. Even though our Bet Mikdash was destroyed. Even though we don't have a Kohen Gadol. Even though in essence you can't really implement all of these laws to our lives today. But yet we still study them because we believe these are the words of the living God. This is what our, our Torah is not about just what can I do today, but rather we learn the entire body of the divine words of a Kadosh Hu, because all the words of a Kadosh Hu and all of it needs to be studied. The things that are clearly something that you could apply to your life today, and the things that are not necessarily something you could apply to your life today. All of it must be studied. This Rabotai Karim is what saved his life. Even though the argument against him came from within, came from within the Jewish community that nearly killed him. Rabbi Yom Tov Hela had the Siyat Dishmaya to, in essence, show one example of why who had us study some of these things that may at first look look like they are not relevant. Now, furthermore, the Admor um, Mitzans, the Klosenberger Rebbe, he paskined a chidush, or at least it looked like a chidush, that Islam is idol worship. Islam is idol worship. Now everyone is familiar with the psaq of the Rambam that Christianity and Catholicism is idol worship, but Islam is not idol worship. So when 
they, people saw at first time what the Klosenberger Rebbe said, and he was an extraordinary chacham. We're not talking about just a, uh, talking about one of the Gdolei Adol, one of the giants, one of the, literally the, the, the forefathers of, of, of our Torah in the world today in the last generation. Despite having his entire family murdered, 11 kids murdered in the Holocaust, he built an empire of Torah after the Holocaust. Despite, literally, surviving each day in the concentration camp by pure miracle, this did not discourage him or slow him down from building an empire of Torah over the next several decades. So we're talking about an extraordinary chacham that kept kosher even in the Holocaust. And he says that Islam is idol worship. Some people look at it, well, you know, okay, it's a big chidush, but the Rambam says otherwise. Interestingly enough, the Roga Chova Gaon, who preceded the uh, Admomitsans slightly, he also says that Islam is idol worship. But since he was an expert beyond the norm of the Rambam, because all he studied was the Rambam and Gemara, they asked him, how can you paskin against your rabbi? How can you paskin against the Rambam? The Rambam says that the uh, Islam is not uh, idol worship. The Rogat Shovagaon gives a genius response that's applicable to everything we're saying. And he says, no, no, you're not understanding. Of course the Rambam is not going to say that Islam is actually idol worship. He lives in their country. If he would have said it, they would have killed him. So what benefit is it to him or to the Jewish world for him to die because he proved the point that they're idol worshippers. So he's not saying they're not idol worshippers, but really they're idol worshippers. They pray to all types of things that are, in, from the perspective of Judaism, considered idolatry. But he's not going to write it. Same thing like 400 years after him, Arab Yom Tov Heller, where in this literally life or death hearing, he said, no, 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 the, the idol worship of the Akum, it's not, it's not Christianity, it's somebody else, it's these other people that lived thousands of years ago. So sometimes you have certain things in the Torah censored, not because of a, uh, this is the, uh, the, the, the bottom line, but rather because there was life risk. There was life risk. So they had to say, say certain things in order to not disclose the truth to the Gentiles. This is also one of the reasons why HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not have the oral Torah given to us in written form on day one. It was thousands of years later before it became into written form. And even after it became into written form, it still requires an enormous amount of study and masoret and tradition that's passed from generation to generation to actually understand the oral Torah. Why? Because there are many details within the oral Torah that the non-Jewish world will simply not understand because they are only looking at things from their perspective. Not from the Jewish perspective, the Torah perspective, God's perspective. They're looking at things from their perspective. It's like when people look at the, you know, the Gemara and they look at certain statements in the Gemara and they immediately say, oh, look, uh, this, uh, how are they allowing something like this? Or how are they forbidding something like this? All types of, obviously, 
uh, ways that people like to uh, make Judaism look bad, they usually highlight one specific statement that's obviously they don't have the ability and the tools to understand. But the point being is, is that we see from here that just one, you know, uh, example of how something like a parasha that we have right now that seems like it's not relevant literally saved the life of the Gdoladol. Saved the life of Gdoladol. On the other hand, we also see of how another giant Chacham told us, yes, this is the reason why this Gadol, why the Rambam said this. It wasn't because that was really the bottom line. He depended on our wisdom to know what's the truth. But he had to say something in order to save his life. Now, lastly, Rabotai, what else can we see from this parasha? What else can we see from this parasha that we can apply to our life? Aside from everything we just learned. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said that Am Yisrael, when we are fulfilling the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we are like the Shemen Zayt Zach. We are like the pure olive oil. What does it mean, pure olive oil? Pure olive oil means that we are pure. We're pure in our behavior. Not just pure in how we follow the laws of Shabbat and Kashrut, and we are careful with what goes in our mouth to make sure it's kosher, but we're also careful with what goes out of our mouth. That it's not Lashon that it's not rechilut, gossip, that it's not lies. We're not only, you know, very uh, particular about the, uh, you know, making sure that we give our uh, tzedakah. We're also particular about how we make the money in order to have money for tzedakah, meaning that the way we make money is kosher. We're not only careful in learning the Torah in order to, let's say, one day become a rabbi and a dayan, but also even more careful that once we are rabbis or dayanim or any type of leader, we're actually fulfilling the obligation according to the Torah, not just to get the position, but to actually fulfill the position properly. And when we do, we are Shemen Zaidzach. We are the pure olive oil. When we don't, Hashem Yilachem, Hashem have mercy on us. The Gemara in Masechet Sukkah says that when Am Yisrael does certain things, HaKadosh Baruch Hu can bring punishment to the world. Now the Gemara in Masechet Sukkah, page 28b, says that if it wasn't for the oral Torah telling us the details of the law, we will think that the punishments only apply to, to men and not to women. But our oral Torah teaches us that the Torah equated men and women regarding all punishments. Meaning, whether a man or a female, we know that everything applies to whether you're a man or a female, as far as the, the punishments. As far as obligation, obviously the obligation is different, meaning a man is obligated to put on to fill in. A woman isn't. A man is uh, obligated to try to have a boy and a girl children. A woman is not obligated to have children. A man is obligated to pray three times a day. A woman is not obligated to pray three times a day. She has to pray once. And so on and so forth. But when it comes to punishment with things that are forbidden, 
It's forbidden to steal. It's forbidden to lie. It's forbidden to commit adultery. It's forbidden to be promiscuous. It's forbidden to violate Shabbat. All of these forbiddens that applies to both. Punishment is the same for both. With the exception of the daughter of the Kohen that commits adultery where she gets a special unique punishment that's different than the man. Other than that, everything else is the same. And for anyone that wants to know the whole sugya about the woman that's a daughter of a Kohen, that's in Masechet Sanhedrin. Anyway, the Gemara tells us that when we act a certain way as a people, as individuals, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to act. Has to act. There's a cause and there's an effect. We do certain things. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to bring certain things. Now, he doesn't always bring the decree right away. Sometimes he'll wait many years, sometimes even an entire generation. But nonetheless, there's no such thing as HaKadosh Baruch Hu not noticing our mistakes, our sins. Now the Gemara says in Masechet Sukkot, page 29, that if the Jewish people, if the Jewish people have not enough respect for the sages, for the Chachamim, when one of them dies, they don't eulogize him properly. That could bring punishment to an entire community. If there is a woman that is engaged, a Jewish woman that's engaged, and somebody rapes her, and no one is, uh, helps her, the entire community can get punished for this. Entire nation can be punished for this. For this one single event of what happened to this woman. If somebody decides that the laws of a Torah are not applicable to them and they decide to be LGBTQ and act on it, not just think it, the entire community, Shem can be punished for this. We're not talking about just a 5,000 or 5 million of them doing it. Talking about one, one person decides to be LGBTQ, the entire Jewish people can be punished for this. And it gives other examples. One of the examples of Butayi Karim is when people that are supposed to be in charge of the Jewish law running a Bedin, they're Dayanim, but they're corrupt, either because of money or honor or other things that are motivating them, and they corrupt the law. They corrupt the law, not according to the Torah, but according to their likings, according to their benefit. They corrupt the law, even though they studied Torah for many years. Even though they're presenting themselves as if they are Torah leaders. But instead of following the law, they corrupt the law. This can bring a tragedy to all of Am Yisrael. If you're hearing that there are Jewish soldiers being killed 
being injured or both, you should know at the very least some of them are because of this. Some of them are because of the other reasons that I mentioned to you. And of course there are other reasons but the point being is is that tragedies that's happening to us right now is not for no reason. And you say, wait, what are you talking about? Who's corrupting the law? These are, you can't speak against rabbis. You're right. You can't speak against rabbis. But the Torah commands us to speak against reshaim, wicked people that pretend to be rabbis. In my hand, I have this write-up that was shared with me, different chachamim, of a tragedy that's happening in the Jewish community where these couple of jokesters that are unfortunately in a position of power as Dayanim, apparently they want to change the Torah. So they had a young man that is from Lakewood and known, confirmed as a Kohen. His father's a Kohen. His grandfather's a Kohen. There's no doubt that he's a Kohen. And he wants to continue being a Kohen. But he happened to find a girl that was born not Jewish and converted to Judaism. And he wanted to marry her. Now we all know that a Kohen has unique rules. He can't marry certain people. Not just he can't marry converts. He also can't marry a divorcee. He can't marry a zona, and so on. But this is not convenient for this uh, Kohen. It's not convenient for the girl. So they came to rabbis and they found a Erev Rav that's in a position of power that's willing to change the law. And he wrote, listen, yes, of course, you're allowed to marry each other. You're perfect for each other. Why? Because of all types of convoluted arguments that he created that really your mom, she already converted conservative. And even though saw, you know, the Orthodox Judaism does not accept conservative as an actual conversion, maybe there is somebody that says it is valid. And therefore... You were born a Jew because she converted as conservative before you were born. So technically, you're not a convert and therefore you're allowed to marry him. Now, on the other hand, he says he's a Kohen. His father's a Kohen. It's all great. But we know that he had some relative in his lineage that wasn't religious. So therefore, we don't consider uh, that his keuna really is 100% keuna. Completely new fabrication. Nobody's ever said such a thing. Whether you're religious or not religious, you're quaint. In so many words, this corruption happened and a few rabbis that found out about it, obviously a screaming foul, 
This is a forbidden marriage. The two that are married are now not, he can no longer be considered a Kohen. Their children, whatever children they have, are considered halal. And of course, the arguments that this rabbi brought were complete lies and fabrications. Number one, to say that the conservative conversion is valid, no one in the in their right mind in the Jewish world would ever accept. And furthermore, even if you wanted to say that there's somebody that would accept it, it still wouldn't accept their conversion. Why? Because the mother was converted by two men and a woman. Two men and a woman. And the Shukhan Aruch says that a woman cannot be a Dayan. Furthermore, the whole argument about the distant relative not being a Kohen and so on, even if you wanted to use that argument... That's assuming that the guy today doesn't want to be a Kohen anymore, but he wants to be a Kohen. He wants to give the uh, be part of the blessing. In so many words, this group of rabbis are screaming foul of this distortion, this corruption of the law for the sake of reputation, money, whatever reason. Point I'm trying to make to you, Rabotai, is that corruption of the law sometimes happens and the vast majority of the Jewish world doesn't even know it's happening. Now, to say that there's corruption in the secular world is, is, is a waste of time. Why? Because every day there's corruption. It's standard there. We're talking about the Jewish world where it's not expected because we're expected to be the Shemen Zaitzach. We're expected to be the pure oil, olive oil. So when you have a Dayan corrupting the law in such a horrible way, of course, the ones that know about it are screaming foul over you. What are you doing? You're changing the Torah. The Sham that you are. Now this is unfortunately not the first time. A few years ago, there was a story publicized where there was a convert that came before the Beddin And uh, said that uh, they uh, really, they want to convert. They came in front of the Bedin and Bedin converted them. But then later on, when they moved country, they wanted to get married, but uh, they, uh, they didn't accept their conversion. And uh, the Ashkenazi Bedin said, no, no, you have to convert again. You have to convert again. So they converted again. Shortly thereafter, they met a Kohen. And they wanted to get married. But we know that a Kohen is not allowed to marry a Kohen. A Kohen is not allowed to marry a convert. So they started arguing, yeah, but maybe we're not really converts because really the mom is the one, the parents that converted, you know, already in Morocco. And by the time the kid was born, you know, they, they, they were already, in essence, Jewish. And we only had to convert a second time because we moved country and they wanted us to convert again. Because they didn't want to rely on the original conversion. But in reality, the kid was already Jewish. We just did it to satisfy the, uh, the community over there. So the kid is already Jewish. And if the kid's already Jewish, then uh, we can get married. She can marry the, uh, the Kohen. Now... This sounded like a nice argument. But Arav Sitruk that was handling this case says, I don't understand. 
why did the second Bedin reject your conversion? We don't know, we don't know, we don't know. We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You did a conversion. No, no, we don't know. They Maybe they don't like it. Maybe because they're a Sfaradin, he's a Shkenazi. You know how they sometimes hate each other. The other people were ready to say, you know what, just let them go, let them marry each other. But Rav Sitok had an extraordinary Yirat Shamaim and Mamash had Siyat Dishmai. He said, you know what, I have to, this is not a simple thing. Why? If I let them get married and they're forbidden according to Hashem of getting married, they're thinking that they're going to have kids and the kids are going to be Kohanim. But in reality, they're halal, they're not Kohanim. This creates a problem for all of Am Yisrael. You have to track them, know who, what, when, how. He reaches out to the Gdolador, Arab Ovadia Yosef. Arab Ovadia Yosef gets this question. Literally, as soon as he sees the question, he jumps out of his chair. Of course, they're not allowed to get married. How usually you're you're lenient on things. Why, why, why are you? No, I know why the second Bedin. I know why the second Bedin did not accept the conversion. Because the Bet-Din now was over there, the original Bet-Din was a rabbi that was a rasha, that I went against him for many years. And when I was the head rabbi of Tel Aviv, I passed the decree. No one is allowed to accept his conversions ever again. He's a wicked person. But apparently through the years, people forgot what I talked about many years ago. So this is what happened. But they're not allowed to get married. Why? The original conversion was not valid. They had to convert a second time because the original conversion was not a conversion. And literally, if it wasn't for Rav Sitrik to double check, to have Yirat Shamaim, you could have people that are forbidden to be married. Married and thinking that everything's okay. Tragedy can come to Am Yisrael and no one knows why. So the Gemara tells us that when people that are in a position of power manipulate the law it brings tragedy to all of us now don't think for a second that this is only a problem in the rabbinical world because it's not because the same gemara says when jewish people go into the business of lending money with interest it brings tragedy to am israel it's not talking about lending money with interest to, to Jews. That's a bad. Generally speaking, Jewish people going into the business of lending money with interest, it brings tragedy to Am Yisrael. And unfortunately, Rabotei Karim, I don't have to tell you, if, unless you're just a new person, you haven't watched my shulim for the last several years. One of the major disasters that's happening in the Jewish world today, especially here in America, is that many wicked people, some of which pretend to be religious Jews, have built literally an empire of wickedness in the cash advance business, merchant cash advance business, which is not only lending money, but lending money with predatory high interest. Which Rav Ephraim, our own dear Rav Ephraim Kachlon, wrote a whole tshuva on, that simply shows not only is it forbidden, not only is it evil, it is one of the primary causes of a horrible decree from heaven, which includes anti-Semitism. 
And unfortunately, Rabotai, this is one of the major businesses right now that a lot of young people are being misled into. You finished learning in yeshiva, you don't, you don't have any technological skills, you don't have any degrees, you're not a doctor or a lawyer, but you want to make a lot of money because being Jewish is not cheap. We got a job for you, come. Call Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith and Mr. whoever that's applying for a loan and process the loan for them. Tell them that uh, they could borrow their $100,000. All they have to do is just make sure to pay 80, 100, 200, 400, 500%, 1,000% interest. In so many words, they have to win the lotto twice just to make sure that they'll ever settle this loan. And unfortunately, I'm going to tell you, this predatory business has become a major disaster. And it's not the first time. We've had this throughout our history. We've had this before the Holocaust. We had this before the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. We've had this in Morocco. We've had this in Europe. We've had this. this every time before a major tragedy, the predominant business was lending money with high interest. And the Tshuva that Rav Ephraim wrote includes some of the historical proofs. And the Gemara here in Masechet Sukkah says one of the things that brings tragedy to the Jewish people is when Jewish people get into this business. Shem Echem. Now, of course there are other examples, but the point I'm trying to make to you is that, sure, we can learn a lot from the past, but you have to choose what you're going to learn. You can learn the story. Story is important. But if you don't find the details in the story that you could apply to your life today in order to improve your servitude of Hashem, in order to improve your character, in order to become a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better son, a better daughter, a better parent, a better employee, a better boss, a better part of the community, a better servant of Hashem, if you don't see part of the story that's going to help you, you miss the whole point of the story. If you're going to learn about the past, you have to also learn about what you can do in the present with that lesson. If you're going to focus on the future, you want to learn about all the things, oh, this is going to happen in the future, all the prophecies, and there's going to be these plagues, and there's going to be this war, and there's going to be all, oh, fine. How can you apply those future lessons to your life today? To your life today. Instead of worrying about everyone that lived a few thousand years ago or a few hundred years ago, or everyone that will live or die in the future, or even everyone that's alive today, we must all make sure that we every single lesson that we get from the Torah or from life experiences, we take them and we apply them to our life in order to make ourself and ourself first and ourself primarily into the Shemen Zayd Zach that's expected of us, into that pure olive oil that's expected of us. Because if each one of us 
makes ourselves into a pure olive oil, we'd all become pure olive oil. We'd all become holy. We'd all become a great representation of Judaism and be a light to the nations, be a sanctification of Hashem. But if each one of us is harping on the past without applying it to the present, harping on the future without really knowing what to do with it today, harping on everyone else instead of focusing on ourselves, ignoring everyone else and simply focusing on ourselves, in so many words, if we don't internalize the Torah and make it actionable, we're not learning Torah. We're not learning Torah. We're not serving Hashem. And this is why Rabotai Karim, Parashat Tetzaveh, is just as critical as every single other parasha in the Torah. Your favorite one and your least favorite one. The ones that have the most amount of details of the story and the ones that have the least amount. Parashat Tetzaveh is the words of the living God. And if we start treating every word of Torah, of the written Torah and the oral Torah as the words of the living God that we must apply to our lives today, our future will be very, very bright. But if we continue allowing people to manipulate the law, manipulate the Torah, allow people that it's okay to go against the Torah, and act in all types of immoral, despicable ways. Recommend or even sit silent while some of our brothers and sisters are literally part of destroying society with their behavior. Whether it's their, their, their horrible business practices or immoral behavior, or both, or whatever it is, and we sit there quietly just caring less about the world except ourselves only, we're not applying the Torah. So yes, part of becoming pure olive oil requires us to internalize the Torah. But part of internalizing the Torah requires us to care about whatever we have some type of connection to. Wherever we can say something, wherever we can do something, we must. And may it be Hashem's will that each and every single one of us will stop living this fantasy thinking that the future is bright. Because unless we brighten ourselves and our actions as individuals and as a community, our holy Torah and the words of the living God has already told us what the future looks like. With that being said, you guys can start asking questions and Bezat Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give us the answers. Why is it that Talmidei Chachamim say that one should not study the Moren Nevuchim until they become a Talmid Chacham? Okay, so this is a question that I've actually answered in the past, but I'll answer it again. The Moren Nevuchim is one of the books that the Rambam wrote uh, that is in essence a philosophical book which has many different uh, extraordinary and important lessons into but the way that the Rambam wrote Moren Nebuchim is very different than the way he wrote everything else which means that if a person does not have the tools 
of foundational knowledge of an extraordinary amount of Torah, meaning they have covered the entire Shas Bavli, they have covered the Shulchan Aruch, they've covered Alachad, they've covered uh, you know an extraordinary amount of Ashkafa. In so many words, they've established themselves as a Torah scholar. If they jump into Morene Ruchim, they could easily become confused with some of the things that the Rambam says that could actually get them to a point of heresy. Uh, so it's a, it's not a book like any other book that you would uh, read anywhere else. It was written in a certain way, and it says says certain things that uh, that unfortunately, if you don't have the uh, mental prowess and experience and, and knowledge of a Torah as a good foundation, it could easily turn you into a heretic. And getting you out of it is almost impossible. Primary examples of it is some of the famous heretics of today. Uh, that we've spoken against, they're avid readers of the Mughen Evuchim. They're avid readers of the Mughen Evuchim. They, 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 in essence, think the Mughen Evuchim is like the most important book that the Rambam wrote, which obviously is not the truth, but nonetheless, they are uh, avid readers of it. Why? Because there are certain things that the Rambam says that can easily be manipulated if you don't have the, uh, the right knowledge and, 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 and the right ashkafa, certain things that he says in there that could be misunderstood or even manipulated in such a fashion to make it into something that is against the Torah. Uh, now the Rambam wrote it in a specific way for a specific reason and certainly the Rambam is Kodesh Kodeshim uh, and people that are Talmidei Chachamim that read it benefit from it tremendously but people that don't, don't and they actually can get hurt from it. It's similar to Kabbalah in such a fashion where someone that gets into the world of Kabbalah before they're prepared not only can it turn them into uh, problematic heretics, but uh, they'll even get punished for that. Uh, they'll even get punished for uh, going into it uh, when when they're not supposed to. So uh, it's a. Uh, of course, I know that the people that don't have a rabbi or don't have yirat shemaim or uh, simply uh, think that they know a lot more than what they really do. Everything I just said will actually make them even more inclined and more interested in reading the Morin Nevuchim. And all I can tell you is. I'm not going to convince you. Otherwise, I'm only telling you, your blood is in your hand. If you're that stupid to simply ignore the guidance of Talmidei Chachamim, then you deserve whatever's going to happen to you. This year will be great to post on a Reform Shul social media page. Anyone interested in doing it, you do it. Why asking anybody else to do it? Anyone that's going to do it, you do it. Whatever, whatever idea a person has, Hashem gave it to them because it's for them to do. It's for them to do. And I can tell you how I learned it. Obviously, we get a lot of different messages and so on. And of course, you know, I, I, I ask Rabbi Ephraim everything. Everything, it's a, from things that some people think are small to things that are you know, beyond what people think is big. And I uh, consult with them on a lot of different things. And sometimes we'll get a message that somebody is contacting us for something that you know, either I don't really want to do, I don't have time to do, or all types of things. And, uh, but part of me says that you know what, maybe I need to do it. So I ask, I ask Rabbi Ephraim. And many times he's told me, if it came to us, that means it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility. And this is also part of the reason of why we've, uh, you know, with our food uh, distribution to help the poor, we helped specific communities, 
we helped specific people, we've done a lot of different things because those things came to us. It doesn't mean that we fix every single thing that comes to us and we, uh, we are able to deal with everything that comes to us, but the point being is, is that uh, if Hashem sent you something, whether it's a specific question or a specific student or a specific deal or whatever message it is, even if He sent you a specific idea, that means it's for you to do it. Not for you to, uh, uh, to give it to other people. There are certain people, and again, I'm not saying about the person that I'm, I read the question. I'm talking about in general. There are certain people that they want to become righteous by making other people do mitzvot. Do you ever hear those people? They want, they want to be righteous, or at the very least, they want to feel righteous or be perceived as righteous by making other people do mitzvot. Now, initially, I told you earlier that, you know, it's uh, greater is the one that enables others to do than the one that does themselves. But this is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that some people are generous with other people's money, with other people's things. So they'll say, listen, I, uh, what are you doing for Shabbat? Oh, you don't have a place? Don't worry about it. I got you. I got you. So the person thinks, oh, so you invite me to your house? No, no, no. I don't have to. But I'm going to call my friend and I'm going to send him, uh, I'm going to get him to, he's going to host you. How do you know that your friend wants this person as a guest? Why are you pushing your friend's house and your friend's generosity on somebody else? Like, who gave you permission? Did your friend ask you to invite people to his house? And unfortunately, a lot of people do this. A lot of people do this. They invite people to somebody else's house without actually having a, any permission or right uh, to do it. Or they'll say, listen, what? You need a job? Don't worry about it. I'm going to bring you somewhere. And they bring somebody to somebody's office. Hey, listen, how are you? Listen, yeah, how would you do this weekend? How are you doing? Listen, my friend over here, I brought him here because he needs a job. Why don't you talk to him? And you put the guy, the guy that runs the company or the manager or one of the employees, you're putting him on the spot. First of all, how do you know he has job openings? Second of all, like, why, why didn't this guy just, you know, why don't you do this in a different way? Or you could say, give him a call. He'll call him, send a resume, something. You put the guy right in his face. You put him on the spot. It's very embarrassing. It's very uncomfortable. Unfortunately, a lot of people do that. Or they say, listen, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're, uh, 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 we need to do certain things. We need to raise money. So uh, we're going to do all this stuff for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, in essence, tell people they're going to help. And what do they do? Listen, what do you guys need? You guys need a million dollars? No problem. They call their friend. Hey, listen, you guys are a nonprofit, right? You guys raise money. Why don't you guys give us uh, the phone numbers to some of your donors? Uh, or better yet, why don't you call them so they can donate to this other cause? And you're thinking you're doing a mitzvah, but you're not. Why? Because again, you're putting people on the spot. You're in essence, you volunteered to help. Don't volunteer to help by making somebody else do the job. If you have a mitzvah in your hand, you want to do it, go do it. If you don't have the ability to do it, don't do it. Unless somebody has made you into this messenger, they asked you to go and publicize that they have money, publicize that they have uh, you know, uh, an opening in their company, an opening in their house. They want you to be their messenger to go and go collect mitzvot from them. Unless somebody did that, you have no business doing that. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people have this nature of, in essence, getting other people to do their mitzvot. Oh yeah, you know those people? Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I fixed them together. Oh really, you know both of them? No, it's just that what happened is I told this one and that one and this one. I said, maybe you have this one. In so many words, they have nothing to do with it. 
They have nothing to do with it, but somehow they feel like they're responsible for a lot of things. It's important for a person to know. If somebody wants to do a mitzvah, you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, you have an opportunity to do a good deed, go do it. You can't do it, don't do it. But don't think that volunteering other people's property, other people's time, other people's stuff without their clear permission to go do it, it's not a mitzvah. Many times it's the opposite. Many times it's the opposite. Many times you put people in uncomfortable positions. In fact, there's a, uh, a couple of times that the Gemara talks about how a person has to be very, very careful when he goes to somebody's house I, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and eating their food. Why? If the person didn't invite you to their house and you're there, and uh, you know, if, if, they, if they didn't know that you're coming, unless you're sure that they have more than enough food, you're not allowed to eat their food. Why? Lest they give, feel uncomfortable to the point of giving you their food or their children's food just so you have something, but they end up suffering as a result. So it's a person has to know that you have an idea to do a mitzvah, you have the ability to do a mitzvah, go do it. Volunteering other people's stuff, only if you have permission. Only if you have permission. Now, of course... Sharing ideas is good, but there's even a way to share ideas, uh, and I think that sharing ideas should also be done in a uh, in a certain way, no different than how people share ideas in a uh, in businesses. It has to be done under a certain format and so on. Uh, but quite frankly, there are certain ideas that uh, don't need to be shared because you could. Ju- it's simple enough for you to do it. It's simple enough for you to do it. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's uh, important for people to know this because there is uh, this thing going on right now where a lot of people are doing this. Uh, a lot of people are doing this. I've heard this already a few times where uh, there is uh, all types of, uh, um, I don't know how to explain, like these uh, people that are just volunteering other people's stuff uh, and, and making the, you know, the, uh, themselves feel righteous but in reality it's they're, they're making other people uncomfortable and and in, in some cases uh lose lose money lose uh time lose uh stuff okay next question let's see uh no we're not inviting anybody to the life no my husband and i well, my husband and I hired a Jewish contractor to remodel our kitchen. We signed a contract, but the next day we got an estimate from a non-Jewish contract for half the price. Uh, we are allowed to cancel the contract within three days of signing. What is the halacha on this? If the, uh, the non-Jew is literally half the price, then you're allowed to uh, cancel the contract and go, uh, go with somebody else as long as the contract says you're allowed to cancel the contract within that time frame. But if the non-Jew is 16% or less more expensive, you have to stay with the Jew. Even if you're allowed to cancel, you need to stay with the Jew. Meaning you have to pay to do business with a Jew, you have to pay up to a 16% premium. Uh, So if he's more expensive than 16%, which in your case it seems like it is because you're saying he's double the price, then you're allowed to go with the uh, non-Jew and do business with him. Thank you for all the blessings.
Okay. How do you know if you are currently wicked or righteous? Uh, the Rambam writes about it. If a person should always look at themselves, if they're doing their best to fulfill the will of Hashem, uh, you know, meaning they're, they're, there's no clear sins that they're making. They're not, uh, you know, regularly violating Shabbat or wasting seed or uh, committing adultery. No, there's no big sins that obviously it's clear that the person is wicked. If the person is doing one of the big sins on a regular basis or, you know, it's, uh, it's part of their life, then obviously they're wicked. If they're beating up people, on a regular basis, or they're threatening people on a regular basis, or they're stealing from people, or they're cheating on their spouse, or, you know, if something like that, then obviously they're wicked. But if the person overall is, you know, doing good things, is following the Torah, is a, uh, not doing anything, uh, you know, uh, terrible on a regular basis, then the Rambam says they should look at themselves as in the middle, meaning the next mitzvah or the next avirah the next mitzvah or the next sin will turn you and the rest of the Jewish world to that side. Meaning, if you do another mitzvah, you and the rest of the Jewish world have are on the righteous side. You and the rest of the world are on the righteous side, but then, of course, you have to continue on that path. Why? Because there's somebody in the world that's making a sin, that's balancing it out again. So if you continue doing mitzvot, you and the rest of the world are continuing to be on the righteous side. On the other hand, if he does a sin, then you are moving the entire your, yourself and the rest of the Jewish world to the wicked side, meaning there's going to be punishment. So if you continue in that path, you continue getting worse. So you have to do tshuva, you have to do a mitzvah. So persons should always look at themselves, not only as in the middle, where the next action, the next act that they do will change everything to the positive side, but also look at themselves from a national perspective, meaning that they have an impact on the entire nation, the entire Jewish people. That their next act is responsible for the entire nation being judged as a righteous or shalom wicked. Because all of Am Yisrael are responsible for each other. Okay, let's see. Uh, in last week's year, you commented that David Melech was a father of the Ruach HaKodesh, but he did not have prophecy, so he had to turn to the prophet Shmuel. What is the difference between Ruach HaKodesh and uh, prophecy? Ah, okay, so first off, actually, I have to correct something that I said last week, where uh, I said that um, Shlomo Melech did not have prophecy, even though that is the general opinion among Chachamim that uh, Shlomo Melech did not have prophecy, uh, there are some Chachamim that say that he did have prophecy in certain parts of his uh, life. Uh, so uh, I forgot to mention that extra part. Now as far as uh, David Melech having Wach HaKodesh and uh, having uh, prophecy, there's a very big difference between uh, the two, uh, where in essence it's a, uh, Hashem is, uh, when somebody has Wach HaKodesh, obviously I'm minimizing it, I can't give you a whole show about Wach HaKodesh and, and, and prophecy, not only because it's a whole big shield, but also it's something that requires a whole lot more uh, preparation than just uh, you know the, the, the knowledge that I'm going to give you now. Uh, but anyway, prophecy is in essence Hashem is giving you a uh, insight into uh, something that He wants you to know, a certain uh, insight, um, a uh, thought, an idea. Uh, in essence, Hashem is letting you into His mind 
for a certain thing, uh, that uh, you need to do something, it's divine inspiration, uh, whether it's to go somewhere, do something, uh, and, uh, and in such a fashion where it's, uh, if it wasn't for that divine inspiration uh, being so clear, no one in their right mind would ever do it. Uh, so it's the Ruach HaKodesh is a, it's, it's when the Shekhinah is in essence resting upon a person and, and you know, opening up a certain chamber of heaven and enlightening the person to know specific things. Uh, prophecy on the other hand is Hashem is giving you not uh, what the Ruach HaKodesh has but it's, it's actually giving you a vision of certain things you actually you know you see certain things you see you see the future you see certain things that are happening in different parts of the world it's it's a vision it's not uh it's not a uh a, a thought uh or, or an understanding of some kind it's an actual vision of something uh and in addition to thoughts and ideas and so on but it's it's a it's it's, it's an actual vision of certain things that uh could be different part of the world could be at different parts of Akadosh Bahu's heavens, meaning not even of this world, could be something that's even happened, you know, many thousands of years ago, could be something that's, you know, not going to happen for, you know, uh, hundreds of years from now. Like, for example, Hashem showed Moshe Rabbeinu the future. He showed him, you know, the Am Yisrael, he showed him uh, Rabbi Akiva, he showed him, uh, you know, everything that's going to happen until the end of the, of the generations. So there is a... Uh, um, literally a endless amount of things that uh, can come to a person through prophecy but uh, it's important to know that prophecy is not something that the prophet chooses to do meaning that there is specific times that Hashem will allow a person to receive prophecy whereas Ruach HaKodesh is generally speaking more frequent uh, but whether prophet or someone that has Ruach HaKodesh it's not all the time, meaning even if someone is really, really holy, uh, it doesn't mean that they always have Ruach HaKodesh. Hashem is not always going to let them in uh, the behind the scenes. And the same concept with the prophets. The prophets were not all, you know, told all the time what's going to happen in the future or what to do. You know, this is obviously uh, something that uh, we could clearly see from the Torah, that you know, the, uh, the biggest prophet, uh, you know, as far as prophecy is concerned, uh, aside from Moshe Rabbeinu, was the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. But yet Isaiah could not, you know, Hashem did not allow him to see enough into the future to know how to uh, escape his grandson from murdering him, even though he was able to use uh, Kabbalah Ma'asit and uh, change nature and go inside the uh, the tree stump. Uh, still, his uh, grandson was still able to discover that and chop down the tree with him in it and killed him. Uh, you know, Menashe. So, the point is, is that if he was able to get prophecy all the time and see the future or the past or anything that he wanted all the time, then obviously he would know where to be uh, whenever he wanted to be. Uh, but that does not—that's not how prophecy works. Prophecy works at specific times, with specific preparation uh, and also specific permission that Hashem uh, decides to give the person a prophecy. Uh, Ruch HaKodesh uh, is uh, certainly different. It doesn't require the same level of preparation. It's, uh, from my understanding, it's, it's, it's a lot more frequent, uh, and uh, there's a lot more people 
uh, you know, uh, were are able to have Ruch HaKodesh throughout history than prophecy, even though we've had over 1.2 million prophets throughout history, prophecy ended at the time of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Whereas Ruch HaKodesh could still be attained even until this day. Certainly not easily attained. Uh, certainly something that uh, the overwhelming majority of people, even if they're righteous, will never have it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's something that uh, we have the instructions of how to get it. I actually have a couple of lectures about how to attain Wacha Kodesh. What do the modern Chachamim say about credit cards? Are they considered tools to weaken Emunah and Hashem? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, if a person is uh, using credit cards or any other financial instrument, uh, they're using uh, tools that they have. The question is how they're using it. You can use a hammer to build a house or fix something that's broken. You could also use a hammer to murder. Uh, you can use a uh, gun to protect. You can use a gun to kill. You can use a credit card to, uh, to do things that you need to do uh, and that, that are productive and that are good. And you can use a credit card for uh, negative things like uh, for sinful behavior, which also includes living above your means when you have no idea how you're ever going to pay it. Meaning you uh, take, use your credit card to go buy a luxury bag or a, I don't know luxury item that you have no idea how you're ever going to pay back this credit card uh, and uh, you know that it's even likely that you may declare bankruptcy and never pay it back so that's not a good idea uh, so a person needs to know how to use whatever instrument Hashem gave him in a, in a, in a proper way uh, you know it's a uh, it's, it's certainly uh, you know important to be responsible uh, and not to live uh, you know above above our means but it doesn't. If a person uses credit cards, it doesn't mean that they don't have emunah and Hashem. If a person has loans, has debt, there's no. It's it's permissible to have debt, as long as you have some type of strategy to pay back. Uh, and it's not like one of these things where you're bar- borrowing a hundred thousand uh, dollars, but in reality, you know, it's it's this hundred thousand dollars is going to be wasted. You know, you're planning on going to uh, some vacation on it, and you don't really have the means to pay back the hundred thousand dollars. That's obviously irresponsible. It's even considered gezel. Uh, you know, for, for, to, it's considered stealing. But if a person is going to use the $100,000 to start a business, uh, to, to buy a house, to do whatever it is that they need to do that's uh, good, and they have some form of way of paying it back uh, over time and, and meet the uh, obligations of the agreement, meaning there's, a, there's some type of uh, uh, debt agreement, uh, that the person has with the uh, entity that lent them the money or the person that lent them the money, as long as they're able to serve that, uh, that agreement and, uh, and, and, and meet the obligation, there's no problem with having debt. There's no problem with having debt. Rabbi, do you answer the questions on YouTube? Uh, not as much because it's a much smaller screen currently, the YouTube setup. It's relatively new. I've only been doing YouTube live for the last, uh, I don't know, few weeks or month or so. Uh, so I haven't really completed the setup for, uh, for YouTube. Uh, so the screen that I have for YouTube is not on a big terminal like I see uh, the, uh, the, some of the other things. Uh, so with YouTube also, 
the um, uh, the questions flash on the screen that I'm looking at, the tiny screen that I'm looking at, and uh, it's many times there's not enough time for it doesn't stay there; it goes away. So while I'm answering somebody else, the, uh, I don't get ch chance to to read the questions, and I just tried seeing if I could find the questions, and I don't have time, and I don't really want to uh, make everybody wait while they try to figure it out. So hopefully over time we'll uh, be able to answer all the questions on YouTube as well, uh, especially as I see that there's a bunch of people that are watching each time, so uh, certainly we're inclined to do it. It's just that right now I don't have the ability. If somebody has a question, they could send it right now, and I'll be looking at the screen and try to read it quick enough. If you're on YouTube, you could send a question now. I'll look at it, and I'll wait for that. I know somebody sent before. So you can just copy and paste what you sent before. I just saw there was like a little paragraph, but then by the time I got to read it, um, it went away already. Can you just copy and paste what you said? And I'll, uh, I'll read it this time. Uh, we're almost done. Is one allowed to work at a casino? Uh, here we go. Which laws of the Rambam about health do we still follow today? There are many. Uh, what do Sao Paulo? I, I'm sorry, the thing went away. Send the San Paulo question again. I didn't read the whole thing. Laws of the Rambam about health. There are many that we follow. Uh, you know the the uh, laws of how of intimacy, uh, the uh, how to go to the bathroom. There's a lot of different things that we still follow. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, the Rambam has 14 uh, books in the Yad Hazaka, uh, and two books for the uh, for the mitzvot. There's a lot of different laws. There. It's, some are still very very applicable, um, and some we can't do because it's just simply not possible, or because a uh, it's it's not the uh, it's not the final psak halacha, so it depends. Just so you, you all know, I'm not you know the, I know you everyone that sees me from their screen, and I have multiple screens in front of me. I have a big screen, and then I have a uh, three smaller screens, so I'm constantly looking at different things to for the questions. Um, so I'm not ignoring anyone on purpose. We're looking to be a convert. My wife is 99% Jew. Whatever that means. We are trying to study in Singapore. Uh, I don't believe that there is a uh, Bedin in Singapore. Uh, you'll have to move to a country that has a Bedin, a Jewish Bedin, a Jewish community. Uh, you'll have to either move to Israel or uh, England, uh, America. You know, there, Australia, I believe, has a, a Bedin over there. You have to move to a Jewish community that has a Bedin in order for you to convert. Something in Brazil. Yes, but I don't know what the question is. I saw Sao Paulo. I know what Sao Paulo is. I know what Brazil is, but I don't know what the question was. I didn't get to read it because the question went away. Dear Rabbi. Okay, thank you for the Rabbi. Just tell me what the question is. No, so nobody waits. I have a question. Aye, aye, aye. Okay.
What do we do when the community doesn't allow us to study with them? Ah, so you want to convert and the community doesn't welcome you? You have to find a different community. According to Noahide law, and that's it, question went away. It's, it's, it stays on the screen for two, three seconds, and I have three questions. I didn't get to it. I heard somebody say, according to Noahide law, and then I didn't read what the rest of it says. Rabbi Nachman seems to imply that Shekhinah is Knesset Israel. Okay. Not really sure what uh, the question there was. Does Shekhinah rest upon Israel? I mean, Shekhinah is not Israel. Why are you not answering me? Did you already answer my question? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of questions. I can't see. It's a small screen. God bless you. Don't be frustrated that I'm not answering. I'm not avoiding any question. There's no question that I'm avoiding. If I'm avoiding, I'll tell you I'm avoiding it. I'm not avoiding any question. If I didn't answer your question, it's because I didn't see it. So if I didn't answer your question, answer again. Okay, there is community for you. Okay, no, please answer me. Yeah, okay, so now a bunch of you are just saying, please answer me. My question is, okay, question is, Ooh, uh, no. question is what is a kolel that's your question no it's a different person I think I think the other one was San Paulo no okay I'll answer the what's the kolel in a minute all right you keep writing my question is but just tell me what the question is okay another one I say I'm confused about the Shekhinah I'll explain it in a second Shekhinah and kolel there's a law in the Torah about to do not to do mixed planting. Is it forbidden to mix any fruit tree if you plant? Yeah, you can. If you're a Jew, you're not to mix uh, the uh, the um, trees. But if a, a goy does it, you're allowed to eat it. Answer my question. I don't know what your question is. God bless you. You keep saying answer this, but I don't know what the question is. Kolel is somebody else. Shechina is somebody else. What is the question? Why is there been a conversion in Argentina? Okay. Someone sponsored... Huh? I don't know what that means. Give everyone who has angered me. Oh, this YouTube thing is terrible. We're still waiting for the one person... To ask the question that said I'm gonna ask the question okay what is a kolel a kolel and I'm gonna answer somebody else's question because you're not asking your question a kolel is a um, a group of uh, Jewish people that study Torah together under a certain uh, environment meaning they go to a synagogue or they go to a uh, some type of uh, building facility and uh, they study uh, Torah, but uh, the difference between a kolel and a yeshiva is that a uh, yeshiva is for young people that are not married, uh, and a kolel is for married men. And usually the married men are studying a certain type of Torah, uh, either to become uh, rabbis or even bigger, to become dayanim, which is Jewish judges. Um, so that's, that's a kolel, but that's for married men.
as far as what the Shekhinah is, the Shekhinah is, in essence, how Hashem is uh, representing Himself or representing a certain facet of Himself to us to communicate something to us. Um, oh, I see. Ah, I see. The person that keeps saying, my question is, my question is, doesn't actually have a question. They're, they're like a practical joker. Oh, wow, you're so funny. Thank you. Where do we send the check for the comedy? Where do we send the check for the comedy? Do we send it to your chamber in Gainom or do we send it to Kafakela? Which one do you have a suite in? Let us know. Which one do you have? Okay, well, in the future you'll have both until you do tshuva for being annoying and uh, wasting other people's time when we're trying to learn Torah. Uh, if you have a guest that comes to your house during Shabbat, are you taking on this, on his Averot, if it's been more than three times and the guest came over? Okay, so in essence, you're saying that someone is coming over your house and is not just someone coming over your house, but someone is driving to your house on Shabbat or is uh, leaving your house uh, by car. In essence, they're desecrating Shabbat as a result of coming to your house. Now, to invite that person once, twice, uh, to help them do tshuva, yes, you can. Um, but uh, by the third time, you have to tell them, listen, if you're going to come to my house on Shabbat, you have to stay there. Uh, you know, you can't drive on Shabbat. Uh, you know, and uh, I say, well, it's, it's my life. You're right, it's your life. But if you're driving to my house and driving, that means I'm enabling you. I'm enabling you to sin, and that I cannot do. That means I become a partner with your sin. So if a person continues to invite people that are driving on Shabbat to his house, knowing that they know that they're not allowed to drive, uh, and uh, they, um, you know, they, they, they are in essence still inviting them, then they're certainly a partner to the crime. They're certainly considered as if they drove on Shabbat themselves. Uh, anyone that wants to see uh, proof of it, can look at the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, uh, page 54b, I believe it is, is a, uh, a couple of examples, 54, 55, and 56, a few different examples in Masechet Shabbat. Uh, one of them is Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, uh, who was in essence uh, judged in heaven as if he violated Shabbat, because uh, he did not uh, tell his uh, neighbor that was a widow that uh, she has to uh, remove the, uh, the burden that was on her cows. In essence, her cow was carrying bells on Shabbat, and he felt bad to rebuke her. He felt bad to tell her not to do it because she was a widow. Uh, but uh, he was judged as if he desecrated Shabbat. And when he found this out through Ruach HaKodesh, uh, he fasted for 19 years until all of his uh, teeth turned black. Just to do tshuva for one time that he didn't tell his neighbor to uh, remove the burden from her cow. She herself wasn't carrying anything on Shabbat. Her cow was carrying something, but it was considered as if Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah was partners to that because he did not rebuke her. So if you are knowingly inviting somebody to your house on Shabbat and that you know that they're going to drive on Shabbat, uh, then uh, and you know you have to tell them they're not to drive on Shabbat. And if they continue saying no, I'm going to come and I'm going to drive anyway, then you can't invite them anymore. Can one well wear a necklace on Shabbat? 
uh, a necklace that has a Star of David on it. Uh, sure, there's no problem with you wearing a necklace. It's like a shirt. Uh, it's like a shirt. Now, it's a if you're living in a place that does not have any rouv, uh, then uh, you don't have to worry about a, a necklace because it's part of uh, it's considered like clothing, but you do have to worry about carrying a key on Shabbat. You can't carry a key on Shabbat if you don't live in a Jewish community that has an iruv. Uh, and now putting the key on a necklace is also not allowed because not really it's not really a necklace. It's, it's you carrying your key in a different way. This presented a very big problem in France many years ago, uh, up to, until the point where uh, one of the people in the community created a belt uh, where the key became a clasp uh, that they used to close the belt because to just uh, put it in their pocket or put it on a chain or anything like that was not was still considered carrying. And so long as they did not have any oof, they're not allowed to carry. Uh, but when somebody uh, made the uh, clasp in the uh, in the belt into uh, you know, uh, there was an actual key, but it was also a clasp, then it was allowed to uh, use that. Uh, that's uh, one of the psaks that Rabbi Vadya uh, uh, publicized and worked on years ago. What is a Siddur and why does it have stuff from a Tanakh? A Siddur is the Jewish prayer book. We have uh, Jewish uh, people have to pray every day. Uh, men have to pray three times a day. Women have to pray once a day. And the prayer that's in our Siddur was uh, put together by the Anshei Knesset Akdolad, the men of the Great Assembly. It's 120 great sages, some of which were prophets at the time of the Bet HaMikdash. And uh, they use different parts of uh, psalms and the uh, sections of the Torah, of the Tanakh, as well as specific prayers, uh, and can put them together after following the, uh, the tradition of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, our forefathers, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham instituted the prayer in the morning called Shachrit, uh, Jacob. Uh, Yitzchak, his son, instituted the prayer in the afternoon called Mincha. And uh, Yitzchak, uh, Yaakov, uh, Jacob, instituted the prayer in the evening called Arvit. So they already had a certain tradition to pray uh, during those times of the day and certain things to say. And the Anshei Knesset the men of the Great Assembly, the Jewish uh, sages and prophets of the uh, Great Assembly at the time of the Bet HaMikdash, they added to it other things that uh, were also beneficial for Am Yisrael to do and to say, uh, which part of them are from Psalms, from King David's Psalms, part of them are from different parts of the Oral Torah, and the reason why they chose every single thing that they chose is based on their knowledge of which gates of heaven are opened at specific times during the day for specific words that are uh, stated, specific prayers. In so many words, think of the heaven as a, a bunch of doors with combination locks. And the Jewish prayer book is not just the access to be in front of those doors, but even the combination to specific locks at specific times if done appropriately.
What will be the punishment for a person running Pornhub? Uh, the punishment for them is the seventh level of Gainom, where they will go in and it will never come out. And if you want to know more details, you can watch my film uh, about Gainom. Uh, now, since I was answering the question, I wasn't able to read the other question that somebody just posted. It seemed like a paragraph. Uh, you could send it again, please. Copy and paste. Now, the whole thing I said about the, the France thing, uh, I'm not sure if that's still a problem today. This was an issue from 25, 30 years ago, maybe longer. Today, I'm assuming many of the Jewish communities in France have an Iluv, uh, but back then they didn't. Ashiu be'anglit achshav, lo be'ivrit. Mechila. Yesh lan bo'ch Hashem shurim be'ivrit be'atachana shri. Tilech Rav Yaron Ruven be'ivrit. Mixed planting trees, is it forbidden? Yes, it's forbidden. It's considered kilaim. Rabbi says, Rabbi does not apply to a breast of person. No. Rabbi Tam Tfilin are for every Jewish person that's married. If you're married, Jewish, you have to not only put on Tfilin of Rashi and say the bracha on the Tfilin of Rashi, but you also need to put tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam without a blessing. We don't make a blessing on Rabbeinu Tam. It elevates the level of Kedusha. It elevates the, uh, the person to uh, the Ratshamayim. It's, it's uh, very important to, to put it on. Rav Vadya worked for many, many years uh, to, uh, to make sure that people knew the importance of Rabbeinu Tam tefillin. Uh, for years, people didn't even realize how critical Rabbeinu Tam Tfilin was to the point where only tzaddikim would use them. Was the halacha says when a woman has a doubt about her ancestors or both lines? Oh, yeah, somebody asked a question and they're moving your question. Can't ask such big questions because it, you, it's not on the screen for long enough. Or, uh, you know, other people ask questions so the question flies. So give me the second half of the question. I heard the first part of the question. It says something about a woman and her someone not being sure about our ancestors unsure about the ancestors about what uh, whether she's Jewish woman in matrilineal line she needs to pass yes if she if somebody whether it's a male or a woman a man or woman is not sure about whether they're Jewish or not they have to go through a conversion it's called Giu uh, um, uh, Safik which is the a, a conversion in order to eliminate the Safik in order to eliminate the doubt, which means that if you really are Jewish, then that conversion is means nothing. It means nothing. You just fulfilled the obligation uh, of, of eliminating the doubt, and no one should doubt you anymore as far as to marry you or to, uh, uh, you know, uh, any type of Jewish ceremony, uh, even inviting you for Pesach. You know, like, you know, for example, we're not allowed to invite non-Jews to our Passover uh, Seder. Uh, so uh, you could invite a non-Jew uh, if you're going to teach him something uh, during the rest of the year, but uh, Pesach is not a time to uh, invite non-Jews. So if somebody's not inviting you to their house because they're not sure if you're Jewish, 
once you go through this process, you have no problem. If somebody's not marrying you because they're not sure you're Jewish, now they don't have a problem. Now they can marry you. So in regards to um, eliminating the doubt, if you really were Jewish, then you fulfill the obligation of eliminating the doubt, and which uh, means that you are fulfilling the mitzvah to be clean in the eyes of Hashem and men. If, on the other hand, you weren't Jewish, now you are. So now that you are Jewish, uh, you could uh, continue uh, uh, living that Jewish life. But it's important for a person to not live uh, in doubt. A few of you sent the questions while I was speaking. I can't uh, read the tiny little screen and speak at the same time. As a Gentile, can I grow your peyote and beard? If it's for the sake of looking Jewish, no. If it's for the sake of, I don't know, you just want to grow your hair, grow your hair. No one can tell you anything. Technically, he has to wait for the Rav to answer. Not allowed to speak for... Uh, yeah. Can a Gentile hire himself as a slave for a Jewish man, or is it possible? I'm sure somebody would want to hire you. I don't know if it necessarily must be a Jew. You can hire yourself to do whatever you want. Uh, you know, but as far as uh, slavery is usually not called slaver anymore. Usually slavery is called uh, blue collar work. You know, so you you get paid, you get rights, you get uh, things. But uh, if you want to be somebody's servant, by all means, you can be. Okay, one or two more questions and then we're done. Can a person... Okay, we did this question already. I know it's a great mitzvah to host guests, especially on Shabbat. If it's a great physical hardship for a family, should we still have uh, guests to acquire this mitzvah? The more difficulty, the more reward. Uh, but if the difficulty creates, uh, you know, uh, shlombite problems, then no. As long as, you know, the difficulty is a, just, uh, you know, making people, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, comfortable and happy, and, you know, that, if that's the difficulty, it's fine. But if it creates problems in the marriage, then absolutely not. Okay, we finished all the questions there.
Tomorrow I have an interview. Could you bless me and my family? This will allow us to do more tzedakah. Be'ezat Hashem HaKadosh Baruch will bless you and all of the people that are learning with us tonight and at any time with a lot of atzlacha, a lot of success and all the good things that you do, whether it's for the sake of you know making a living and be able to fulfill mitzvot or it's uh, charitable causes or it's your Torah learning uh, and all the good that you do, Be'ezat Hashem, everyone will have a lot of success, Be'ezat Hashem. Any Jewish mysticism books that you recommend? I don't recommend uh, Jewish mysticism books to anybody, uh, you know, that I don't know. Kodav, isn't a person with status of impurity allowed to learn Torah following Ezra's opinion? If not, is it one of the reasons why a person with Sarah? is considered dead as far as tzarat it doesn't really uh it's not something that we could remove it's not something that happens really today uh there is a certain hospital for people that have it in uh, in eretz israel but uh, they, once they go in they never leave uh generally people don't get tzarat anymore because we don't have a cure anymore uh you need the uh better mikdash for that as far as uh, impurity, everyone has a uh, tumat met. Everyone has a, a, the impurity, and we're all going to stay impure until uh, Mashiach comes. Now, as far as uh, cleanliness, for example, after somebody is uh, intimate with his uh, wife, uh, certainly that person should uh, shower uh, before they learn Torah and not uh, go learn Torah right after doing that. Uh, the act, but uh, as far as um, you know, if they can't shower, for example, because it's Shabbat, they still should you know clean themselves, uh, and then they can learn Torah. But as long as they don't have filth on their body, uh, whether that filth is fecal matter or seed or whatever it is, if they don't have it on them, then they can study Torah. You know, sweat is not considered filth. You know, a person's allowed to sweat. There's no problem. Um, but uh, you know, things that are considered uh, disgusting are uh, not allowed. Okay, I think I've answered all the questions, Baruch Hashem, even the ones that said, why aren't you answering my question? I think I answered their questions too. All right, here we go. Since people walk around almost half naked, too long of a question by the time you send the question, other people sent. Uh, can the person that's running Pornhub ever repent? Can they? Sure. As long as they're alive, they can still do tshuva. They can still repent. Uh, will they repent? Obviously, that remains to be seen. Uh, you know, is it uh, going to be easy to repent? Absolutely not. Because they have to not only stop doing what they're doing, shut down the entire business, uh, but they have to also help other people do tshuva for pornography, which is certainly not an easy thing to do. But it's possible. Sure. If they're alive, anyone's alive can still do tshuva. Uh, will they do tshuva or not? Will they repent or not? You know, it's obviously it's still their free choice. But the bigger the sin, the more difficult it is to do tshuva for it. If they do tshuva, they can enter Gan Eden. If they obviously don't do tshuva, they can't. Do I have advice for quitting pornography? Yes. Uh, there's a uh, 
film called Tikkun Abrit on my channel, start by watching the Tikkun Abrit film. It's spelled T-I-K-K-U-N-H-A-B-R-I-T. Watch that. After that, there's a whole playlist of lectures that I have about wasting seed uh, and everything that's connected to it, which obviously includes pornography. Watch all of those lectures. After you watch all of those uh, lectures and you continue watching them on a regular basis, you know, different, some of them are long, some of them are short, some of them are five-minute clips, some of them are two-hour lectures. Watch some of my other lectures uh, about, like this one, that are general lectures that are simply going to help you become a more moral person that's following the, uh, the words of Torah. Uh, the combination of uh, both, uh, you'll be able to overcome pornography and all of the other things if you really take things, take the words that uh, are said to action. Uh, as far as uh, quitting... Many, many people, Baruch Hashem, that have watched my uh, lectures over the years have quit and have become really righteous people. Some even became rabbis. Baruch Hashem. I can't really tell you the rabbis' names that, have, that are my students that have overcome this stuff uh, because that would embarrass them. But the point is that some of the rabbis today that some of you listen to are uh, started off by uh, listening to our shulim about this stuff. And some people that are rabbis even before uh, that uh, before I even did tshuva, did tshuva as a result of our shulim about uh, the issues of wasting seed. They've helped a lot of people, so highly recommend people watch them. If someone found a national treasure while doing an outdoor activity, is it finders, keepers, or do they have to report it to the government? Depends it's a, uh, where you live, Jewish, not Jewish. Um, there's a lot of different factors. Uh, usually, you know, it's a uh, the law of the land has a uh, certain uh, restrictions more in one place over the other. Uh, but as far as halacha is concerned, you don't have to uh, tell anybody about it. But again, it depends. Depends. Or, you know, you want to get yourself in trouble. Why is it that men that live with their mommies after the age of 50 think it's completely normal to have their figured wives move? Their figured wives move in with them and their mommy. What is the priority? Uh, well, listen, if somebody's been living with their mother for 50 years and they just met a woman and they want to marry them, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to leave their mother's house uh, because just because they met the woman now and the woman now is a wonderful woman or she seems wonderful and uh, they want to build a house with them, it doesn't mean that they're just going to abandon what they've been... Uh, uh, used to, accustomed to, and even enjoy uh, until now. It's not a, especially at the age of 50, their mother's probably older, they don't want to leave her. She's, you know, she's probably a widow. Uh, so uh, if a, a person is living with his mother still at the age of 50, most likely he's never going to leave his mother's house. 
and whoever wants to marry that person should expect that and not even try to get them to leave their mother's house because it's an unreasonable request. Uh, if somebody's still living with their mother at the age of 50, that's part of the package. If you're coming in to try to change the package, that means you want a different package. You want a different person. A person that's living with their mother at the age of 50 is doing it as part of their, that's part of who they are. They have made a life decision that this is the best thing for them. Whether it is or it isn't the best thing for them, obviously you have to know the person to know uh, whether it's the best thing for them or not. But for a woman to come in and think that uh, they're going to change this person's life at this stage of their life is uh, arrogant and inconsiderate. Uh, a person that's living with his mother for that long, it's, a, uh, it's unreasonable to ask them to leave their mother's house. Uh, for many different reasons, and quite frankly, it's a uh, uh, it's 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 right for them to stay with their mother at this stage because if they leave their mother's house at this stage of their life, number one, it's going to be a huge difficulty for their mother to adjust at such an age. Their mother's at least 75, 70, 80 years old. Very difficult for them to to adjust. Number two, he is making their mom suffer this very difficult uh, adjustment uh, for a woman that uh, he doesn't even know yet. He doesn't know if it's going to work out. So what if it doesn't work out with this new woman? Even if the new woman says, I want to marry you. If, you know, again, usually people don't get married after uh, a week. Usually people you know, get to know each other for a little while. And uh, he doesn't know if it's going to work out or not. And they're uh, really going to be happily ever after. Especially when people get married at that age. So for him to move out of his mother's house, I don't think it's a, uh, a reality. And I think that any woman that meets a guy that still lives with his mother should, in essence, assume that this is what it is. If she's not interested in it, then she should not ask the person uh, to go on a date with her or accept an offer to go on a date with him. She should simply just say, not for me, and move on to somebody else. Just say, uh, that's it. Uh, I can tell you the the uh, you know the uh, the perspective of the Torah is that a woman should uh, and a man should not leave their parents' house until they're married. So if a woman is looking at things from the perspective of the Torah, if let's say for example the man is still living with his parents and he's uh, and he's single, he's technically doing the right thing according to the Torah. There's no reason for him to live by uh, by himself. It's a problem for him to live by himself. He can make more sins. Uh, on the other hand, a woman that's uh, living by herself and she's not married, it is problematic according to the Torah. Why? Because that could lead to promiscuity. It could lead to problems uh, against the Torah. She should still be living with her, you know, in her father and her mother's house. But again, this is obviously we're talking to people that are, you know, people that have done tshuva later on in their life or uh, people that uh, did not know this until now. So, of course, there is a understanding of, of reality, but point being is, is that just like we are expecting the world of Torah and of course HaKadosh Baruch Hu to understand our limited circumstances and our misdecisions and mistakes uh, in life and accept our tshuva, we have to also be accepting and understanding of other people and their decisions and not try to adjust the world to our liking. This is one of the primary problems in the world of relationships, especially marriages today where people are looking for, uh, for, for, for a partner based on, you know, somebody that fits them. Meaning, I want, you know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry somebody that meets my, uh, meets my criteria. 
you know, a woman has a criteria, a man has a criteria, she has to be this tall, this short, this weight, this bank account, this color hair, uh, this accent, this uh, understanding, and she has also, uh, you know, a, a list. He has to be this tall, this skinny, this fat, this family, this amount of knowledge, this job, this uh, salary, this bank account, this uh, understanding, and this is why people get divorced. Why? Because they're coming into a relationship based on a shopping list, like as if they're going into a supermarket to buy stuff. They're coming into a relationship looking for someone to fit their description and their needs. They're not coming into a relationship in order to fit somebody else's need. They're not coming into a relationship to give they're coming to a relationship to take. I'll, you know, I'll take it if he is that tall. I'll take it if he is that uh, rich. I'll take it if he is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, that uh, skill. I'll take it. Why? Because he meets my shopping list requirement. He meets my to-do list. I could put a check mark next to the to-do list. That's a to-do list that's bound to get a divorce or be miserable throughout their entire life. If a person wants to have a successful marriage... They have to go into a relationship with a priority of giving of yourself to help the other person, to help your partner in any way that you can and not necessarily only looking to accept. And you say, oh, but what about me? Well, guess what? If all you focus on is giving, then guess what? A normal partner will reciprocate. They also give. They also give. So when you focus on taking, they also focus on taking. And guess what? Nobody has anything in the end. Everybody's miserable. Why? Because I want this, but you didn't give it to me. I want that, you didn't give it to me though. Yeah, but I want that, you didn't give it to me. But I want that, you didn't give it to me. So what happens? They fight about what this one didn't give the other. And nobody gives anybody anything, except once they don't have a choice or they simply just have had it to fighting and they just give whatever they take. But that's a miserable life. You want to have a happy life? You have to focus priority number one, two, and three is give. Give of yourself. That means that if you have uh, something that you want to do, but your husband wants to do something else, you want to sit on the couch and watch a movie. Your husband wants to go learn Torah, or he wants to, uh, you know, uh, watch a Shield Torah, or he wants to um, go walk outside. Go. Unless he wants to do something bad, go with him. Yeah, but I want to just, uh, you know, I want to watch, uh, you know. Yeah, I know you want to watch, but if you want a happy life, you're not going to fight for everything that you want. And that's the problem. People are fighting constantly for what they want. They look at relationship like a shopping list. And very rarely do people think of relationship as an opportunity to give. Constantly give. If you look at any successful relationship, you'll see people that are giving constantly giving constantly but also receiving but they receive without asking why they receive without asking because they're focused so focused on giving that there's no time to ask so how do they get what they want because when you are with a normal decent human being and you're giving that normal decent human being then guess what they're going go on naturally going to want to give it back they want to give you more. They want to give you of themselves. But you have to have the right perspective of relationships. If you're coming into a relationship looking to change the uh, person, 
their wardrobe, their uh, house, their you know ideas, their look. That means you want somebody else. That means you want somebody else, and you have to, you know, find somebody else. You know, but if if you're going into a relationship where you are looking at it as how can I meet his uh, his needs, not just the sensual needs, not just the financial needs, not just the uh, I don't know uh, boredom needs, but you know life, life. You know there, there's there are certain things that a person finds really really important. It's really important to them, and if you also view it important, not because you like it, not because you even agree it's important, but it's important for you because it's important to them, that means that you are giving. But if it's only important to you because you agree that it's important, then that means you're not giving. That means that you're still living a shopping list life. So it's important for a person to know if they want to succeed in relationships, give. Give and give. And if you want rule number four, I'll even give you rule number four. Since I give you three for the price, same price, I'm going to give you rule number four. Rule number four is, don't forget the first three rules. Give, give, give. You do that, you're going to be a happy person. Okay, Rabotai, Baruch Hashem, we learned. We, I think, progressed a little bit. We have some tools that we can apply. Uh, we even have some people that like to mess with us a little bit, and that's also good because if the Yetzirah doesn't interfere, that means that you're doing something wrong. So if he's interfering, that means that you are bothering him, which means you're helping people do tshuva. So that's a good thing. We, uh, we're moving. We're making some progress. Each and every single person takes these things, applies them to their life, or at least as much of it as possible. Uh, for those of you that want to help us, if you have the resources, please donate on the websites, either bezatashem.org or bhtorah.org or send a check or the many other different ways that you could donate. For those of you that want to distribute some of our USBs or books in your communities, Jewish communities, you can go to the website kiruvstore.org and you can order the stuff there for free and uh, we even pay for shipping. Um, and uh, for those of you that want to help us in other ways you have technological skills you have rich friends and family that you want to whatever you want to do to help us by all means we welcome it thank you very much for learning with me Hashem bless each and every single one of us that's learning Torah and bless all of Am Yisrael with and Bezat Hashem will win all the wars that are against us, whether it's the ones from the outside, from the enemies of the outside, or even the enemies within. Call to Bachavat and Shabbat Shalom.
Rabbi ben Holkanos asked him, what can we do to protect ourselves from Chavrei Mashiach? He says, Torah and Gemilut Chasadim. Even if somebody does a, a nice thing or learns a lot or anything like that, it's never compared to bringing one of Hashem's lost kids that's been lost for the last 3,000 years back home. One of the beautiful things that we have in our organization is that we have both Torah and Zikui Rabin, because we have our kolels, we have our avachim, and we also have our cube that we do around the world. Our lectures reach every corner of the world, Baruch Hashem, in multiple languages, but of course, we always want to do even more. while we have Kiruv work that we've done throughout the whole year, we also have the Torah that we're constantly producing more and more of, and last but not least, the uh, Chesed to feed the poor people in Israel. A very special thank you to all our amazing guests who show real about this land by taking the time out of their business schedule and sharing their ups and downs with us, all for the sake of our land. One of the big things that we have, aside from this campaign, you probably see this poster or something similar to it, is also we published some of the recent results that we have, or at least up to now, of the organization. And one of the reasons why we do this each year is because we want to make sure that our partners, our donors, our Talmidin, know where their money is going. Unlike everybody else that, you know, uh, says a lot, does a lot, we want to show you what these results are. I can tell you from my experience and a little bit of knowledge about the whole Torah world, I don't know of anybody else, uh, any other organization on planet Earth that produces produces dollar for dollar what we've produced over these last few years. This is nothing to be arrogant about. It's simply Siyat Bishmaya Kadoshbo who helped us. We made every sacrifice that we can possibly make in order to, ha- to make it happen. Producing nearly 300 films, publishing 32 books, our own books, giving out 154,000 books for free. Giving out 154,000 books is not a cheap endeavor. Anyone that wants to do such a thing has to be completely committed to HaKadosh Baruch to his children, and most importantly, to have bitachon in HaKadosh Baruch and his Torah. We also have fed over 160,000 people over these last several years. Each year, during Pesach, the high holidays, throughout the year, we help a lot of people eat, help make sure that they have groceries, food, all types of things, and uh, you guys have seen many of the videos that are uh, that we've produced over the years to actually show you the people that are getting this food. You have here 160,000 people have eaten, nearly 300 Torah films, and then on top of all of it, we have 1.4 million USB CDs and cards that have been given out for free. All of the work that we've done over the last 10 years 
on these USBs given out for free. Last but not least, 12,000 video and audio lectures available online in about 14 different languages for the world to watch for free. ארגון בעזרת השם לקח על עצמו את אחת המטרות הקשות ביותר בדור שלנו לתקן עולם במלכות שדי לא להסתפק במשהו אחד לעזור רק לאנשים מסכנים רק לאנשים ניצולי שואה רק לאנשים שלא מכירים את אלוקים רק לאנשים שאין להם כלום בבית אלא לעזור לכלל ישראל בכל מכל ברוך השם, חפץ השם בידינו הצליח למעלה ממיליון יהודים ויהודיות נעזרו על ידי ארגונים בעזרת השם. רק תדמיינו לכם איזה עוצמה היה לכל אחד ואחת מהשותפים שזכו להיות כל אחד כפי כוחו ויכולתו, לאיזה תוצאות הצליחו להגיע ולאיזה תוצאות עוד יצליחו. פורים שמח על לראות את השלטים, נעלה עכשיו למעלה, כמו קצת האש, את הלימוד. ברוכים הבאים, אפשר לראות כאן. כולם יושבים לומדים, איזה רעש של תורה, איזה רעש, איזה רעש, הנה יש פה עוד בית מדרש, וגם פה יש, השם הכל עמוס. דמיון הזה הוא לא דמיון כל כך רחוק, כי כמו שהתורה אומרת, בפיך ובלבבך לעשותו, ככה גם בדבר הזה. כל מי שירצה, כל מי שרוצה או רוצה להיות שותפים איתנו, עם הארגון הקדוש והנפלא הזה, שכל כוונתו לשם שמיים, להגדיל תורה ולהאדירה, להרים קרן התורה, לעזור לכל אחד ואחד מעם ישראל, בכל העניינים. כל המישורים, מהילד הכי קטן שצריך מטרנה וטיטולים עד האיש הכי 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 מבוגר שלעולם לא הניח תפילין ורגע לפני המוות דואגים להניח לו תפילין. אם גם אתם רוצים להיות שותפים בכאלה דברים גדולים בעשייה של תורה ועבודה וגמילות חסדים, ברוך השם, ארגון בעזרת השם כאן לצדכם, לשירותכם, יחד עם כלל ישראל. כמעט מיליון וחצי דיסקים, דיסקונקים, שחילקנו, כל הדברים האלה בחינם, יותר מ-12,000 שיעורים. אז כל הדברים האלה, מתי שבן אדם רואה כמה ההשקעה שלו, אם זה בבתים, מניות, בכל מיני דברים, והוא רואה שהמניה עלתה 10% במקום אחד, ו-1,000% במקום שני, אז הוא מבין איפה להשקיע פעם הבאה. ואותו דבר פה, יש הרבה אנשים שברוך השם צופים את השיעורים שלנו, שיעורים של הרב אפרים, שיעורים של הרב שרביט, ושאר הרבנים בארגון, ועכשיו זה הזמן להיות שותפים בדבר הגדול שאנחנו עושים ברוך השם. One of the reasons why we do this, why we show these numbers, is because we want to show everyone what we've done to give you an indication. An indication of what we can do in the future so this is the time where we need as much of your help as possible to push yourself more than you typically do if you typically donate a couple hundred dollars donate a thousand if you uh, if you could afford uh, the uh, uh, 8,000 15,000 50,000 whatever you could afford this is the time to do it because this is going to be the help that we have to help all of these other to feed these people and perhaps Hashem, one day to get that building that we've been uh, wanting to, uh, to build here in, uh, in the United States to build a community but the, all of these things require millions of dollars if not now then when you 